You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 200th episode of the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm bringing you a long conversation, two hours and 15 minutes or thereabouts, with someone who is one of the most iconoclastic, one of the most skilled, talented, pioneering and certainly one of the most influential stand-up comedians in British comedy, in world comedy. This is Stuart Lee. Most years I do about three months on the circuit, if you know what I mean, from about um, April to sort of June. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll try and do five, six nights a week. And then I do get to see lots of new acts then. Um, but, there, but there are so many. I mean, when I started doing it in 1989, there was only about 80 people doing this mm-hmm. nationally. So you knew everyone pretty quickly, and you and you could kind of keep pace with its development. But the last ten years or so, it's exploded, and also I'm a bit disconnected from it. So I don't. Yeah. I, I really like that three months being on the circuit, trying to see people I've not seen before, and trying to sort of work out where it's at and what direction it's going in. But Mac's really good because something about um, uh, you know how how it's booked and the sort of festival it's become means that lots of the people on there are the sorts of people that I would be interested in anyway. Yeah. You know, so, and, um, so there's been a sort of filter put on it. So I, I do like that. Yeah, the, the, the filter of Henry Whittaker. Well, the filter very, of Henry Whittaker. specifically yeah, and, uh, you know. only allowing people he thinks are great or interesting. Yeah, you know, so, it, I mean, or nice I, I, even if I don't get to see people's acts, if I see their face, I sort of think, oh, that's one of the ones to watch. Because they're at, um, <laughs> they're at, so yeah, you get, you get a sort of sense there of, I mean, weirdly that McCuntliff actually feels like, the comedy tent at Glastonbury in the 80s. You yeah. know, it feels like an 80s alternative. It feels like when festivals were part of what we called the counterculture, you know, they, the, the kind of comedians that are on at McCuntliffe and the way it works that you, that there's a, a bar with a band playing in it and people are camping and that's like being in the comedy tent at festivals nearly 30 years ago before they got all owned by Festival Republic and, you know what I mean? So it sort of feels, and I, I love the fact that it can go with the kids because when I was a teenager, I used to go off to those crusty festivals on my own and often see. I mean, I saw a lot of... One of the first places I saw the alternative comedy was at um, the Elephant Fair in Cornwall in 1984, which I think was Jenny Eclair and Malcolm and Hardy and Mark Steele and the Popticians and Hegley yeah. and in, a, in a tent like 
the one hit line, like a McCunnith sort of vibe, you know. So, and I, li- I like going with the kids because obviously they've gr- they're growing up in, in middle class London and in a sterile, in urban sort of environment, and it's nice for them to have a taste. Henry's created a kind of virtual model of what of kind of a weird eighties festival, <laughs> you know. So it's sort of like I find it nostalgic. You know, there's like local people selling cider and you know, yeah, c- curry vans and stuff. It doesn't feel like. Um, a lot of them do now, so yeah, I really like it. But that weekend, I mean, that, this show was really was a weird one to get together because first of all, okay, e- right, e- each block of work that I do, I have to sort of think who's the character now, right? What 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 is his status and what's his relationship to the rest of the world? And lots of people have to think about why they're on stage and who they are. And with me, I've sort of decided he's on stage. Because he's a comedian. Right? Yeah, and he that's has to explicitly try and, his job, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's explicitly yeah. his job. And he has to try and do that job. And each in each show, he's trying to do that job for some reason, either out of sort of bitterness to prove himself better than other people or to meet basic financial needs that he's saddled himself with. But in each show, he's prevented from doing it by some problem, either of his own making or some external one. So there's some sort of jeopardy. And so at the start of each one, I have to sort of think about how I relate to things. And the process of working with the BBC on Comedy Vehicle for 10 years has made that difficult, but also interesting. For example, in between the first and second series, it took a long time to get whichever show that was. In between the first and second series and the second and third series, I think I did the, the uh, tours that were Carpet Remnant World and If You Prefer a Milder Comedian. And they were both, they both took a few months to settle because I didn't know where I was at the time because the BBC didn't know whether they were commissioning or not commissioning a second and third series. So it was all kind of in limbo. So on the one hand, I didn't know what my status was. You know, I didn't know whether I was this person with a secure TV job. Or had you been rejected. Or had you been rejected, Which would yeah. have made it easier. Yeah, it would have made it easier. Yeah, and actually, partly why um, this one, this one's much more lively than the last few, and he's a lot more sort of boisterous and bolshy on stage. Um, because it's been cancelled, right, that sort of gives him... He's, got a, he's a, allowed to be cocky, because it comes from a lower status position, you know, so... Um, and, and anyway, what had happened with this is again in May, I didn't know what was going on because it had been cancelled, which I didn't really mind to be honest. But th- but there was there were these sort of attempts to refloat it through some other. There were lots of people there that liked it who wanted to try and do it through some other department or you know. So it was all kind of I didn't really know, and they couldn't really tell me whether if they were going to do it again, whether I would end up dismantling this tour into parts of a series. Mm-hmm which obviously means you have to write it with a really different rhythm because you're looking for 60-minute or 30-minute blocks or something. So that was all weird. And then, then it kindly finally went away. Actually, in the end, I had to sort of decide that just to get on with it, whatever they were deciding. And then, and then June, I mean, it's, I've made a joke out of it in the show, but in June, when the Brexit happened, I mean, I didn't do what Bridget did, which was Bridget Christie, my wife, which is she threw away a show and started again. But I... I thought, well, it does change everything because it's the beginning of the dismantling of post-war liberal democracy. (laughs) And um, (laughs) that's sort of the framework I've grown up aspiring to and understanding. And and so I thought I had to sort of address it, which meant I had to create these sort of spaces in the show where I could do little bits about politics. And also I knew I wanted to keep it on the road till April next year because I see this as also a sort of chance to 
make some money out of it because I'm not selling it to the BBC. Yes, you which, don't have another. I mean, for a while, weirdly, you make more live on the material than yeah. by giving it to the telly. And at 48, two kids, not in particularly good shape. You know, you sort of think, well, I need to. This will be a debt clearing one. You know, yeah. so I had to write something that would work for a long time. So there were all sorts of sort of structural problems created by the need to keep it on the road for 18 months, the uncertainty and the politics being so volatile. You you arguably have the like the best model, or certainly when the TV show was, was running, when there yeah. were more series in the pipeline, you had the best model, I guess, for how to be a working comedian in Britain. Really? Like, yeah. Oh, right, right, well, right. in terms of like, you gig every night to a theatre that you that is near your house, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, in yeah. Leicester well, Square. Four months of the year. Yeah, yeah sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But for those four months, that's like your your kind of putting the show together time yeah, yeah. is is like if you look at what I'm trying to do at the moment, I'm doing a I'm doing a tour where I do an hour, which is yeah. last year's show, and in the second half I do new stuff, and it's very informal and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. So I'm like, aha, I've made a you know I've managed to find yeah. a way to preview new stuff to get yeah, in. Yeah. You were doing like this incredible version of that where you were, you know, looking at it, and I don't mean cynically at all, but but you were getting rehearsal time yeah. that was paid. earning, paid, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you didn't need to travel for it. It was like the pre-tour section, yeah. and then you were selling the results to TV. Yeah, in the end. I mean, well, the, 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 there's, well I, I do think there's nothing, there's no way around it that you get that stage time makes you better, you know, and also... Um, what, what I'll do in that four, three or four months at Leicester Square is play the material all sorts of different ways. Like, I, remember, I think the night that you came in was pretty, like, I was being pretty hard with them and truculent. Other nights I'll try it with levity. I'll do sort of different things. And also if something goes wrong in the room during that three-month period, I'll sort of let, I'll just run it into the ground and see what happens because sometimes a really good thing will come out of that. And um, it's amazing how much it changes through sort of forced improvisation. If you go back at the end of the three months and look at what you wrote, you realise you're not really doing it anymore. The story might be the same, but the whole nuanced intonation of it has changed. The other reason for doing that is I always, I've got a very sort of workmanlike attitude to thinking ahead, right? And I sort of feel like I'm, at the moment, while I'm still fit enough to do it, I feel I'm trying to consolidate an audience for the future. And I think that an audience has a much better time at the Leicester Square Theatre in a 450-seater room than they do at the O2. Uh, also, I can break down the audience into little bits and play off different people's reactions, which is much harder to do in a massive room. So, what I, And also, at Leicester Square Theatre, you can do a longer show in a better room and charge half what you are obliged to at the O2 or Hammersmith, right? And, and also, all those people will come back. 90% of them will come back and bring a friend because they've had... A really great time. experience, yeah. yeah. Whereas I do think the larger shows start to get quite passively consumed. And I've seen really good people at Hammersmith when there's a lot of people wandering around and talking. There's just something about the diffuse yeah. nature of it, right? So it's partly a, th- a thing about trying to do to play to as many people as possible in as in as small a space as possible, as is viable, right? So, so that if I do get to the point where I can only do 50 shows a year because I'm so old... And then when I do do those fifty and ten thousand seater places, the hopefully the people will come with you. You know, it's sort yes. of sustainable from them. But um, and, and I like being able to charge less, and, and and also it's not altruistic because there aren't over the same overheads. I do no advertising, yeah. you know, so I see as much of the twenty five pounders or twenty pounders somebody does as sixty for 
somewhere else, but you haven't got the the costs. You know, yeah. you haven't got hiring a massive crew and whatever. So actually, it's it, and it's nice to be able to charge less because I've got this sort of stupid thing being of an of that sort of eighties post punk indie generation where I sort of think people ought to be able to afford to go to this. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the problems I have when I when I, I periodically get involved because of my history with theatre to do commercially West End theatre things and the talks inevitably break down at the point where it's clear that the half the actors are going to be on terrible money and the tickets are going to be 90 quid and no one's going to be able to do anything about touts so it's mm. just like not it's not worth it to me you know? is, is there a tension between you wanting to consolidate and retain and expand the audience yeah. of say the live shows at Leicester yeah, Square yeah. And you wanting to be able to take risks and r- well, risk pissing them off. Yeah, there is. And actually, I wonder if it's reached its elastic limit. Because I, mean, I was in, I did f- f- four nights in Brighton on this tour at the Dome, which is about, I think it's about eight, eight or nine thousand people, you know. But, but one night, the Saturday night, there was just enough people in looking at their phones for it to be for me to wish I'd done one night less and they hadn't bought tickets right because it just starts to feel like any show then where passive consumers have come in and um but you know what 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 I do do is I do lots of sort of character stuff in the first 20 minutes where he he arrogantly says this is happening on his terms it's not for the benefit of the public and if they don't like it they should have gone to something else and the whole persona is about it's kind of take it or leave it to the mm-hmm. audience, it's not really for them. Yeah. So, so it would ha- you feel like it, was, it would happen anyway, whether they were there or not. And so, which of course the opposite is true. Obviously, I'm working really hard to make the night work. But if you, because he, he can give off a level of indifference, I still think you can then sort of experiment. Although I think maybe the the, the the material that I toured for the fourth show was the most weird stuff that I've done to a mass audience. And it worked nine times out of ten on on tour. But when we came to film it, the numbers game was much lower. Like, if you're doing something really odd to a thousand people, if ten percent of them like it, that's a hundred, and you can build from that hundred and eventually get yes, the thousand. Okay. But if you're doing something really odd to a hundred people in a small room, which is how we filmed the telly show, and to ten percent of them like it, that's ten people. And yet, as you know from doing different sizes of rooms... The tipping point for ten is much is going to be much lower, yeah. uh, hard, harder to shift that ten into a hundred. And and you, you know? were and with series four, you were by that point you were kind of entrenched in this system that you had. This w- yeah, which yeah. I think is an incredibly laudable, brave, interesting, exciting way to do a TV show. Right. Here we go. This is the show. We fi- I mean, you film each episode once, Tw- uh, twice. Twice. Yeah, okay. yeah. You sometimes end up cutting between them, but. Um, you I take back one up, of my uh, adjectives. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't yeah, realise yeah. you did that. No, you do it twice. <laughs> you do it twice, but you normally end up um, not on the same night. You don't do it twice yeah. to the same audience. You, no, you normally end up using <laughs> one of be, them. That would be a real experiment for next yeah. time. But really, that's more about just sort of sometimes I don't get coverage of stuff, you know. And, and also, different things will happen every night. You, again, I try to force 
real events to happen. Although the weird thing about that is people don't believe it because telly's normally so controlled. Mm-hmm. Every single thing that's made it to the screen in Comedy Vehicle that was a real thing that happened in the room, mm-hmm. like someone dropping something or getting up or something failing and me changing it around. You look online and there'll be these long discussions about, oh, yeah, the guy that shouted that out, he's an actor, I know who he is, I've seen him. And it's like they, <laughs> they, they think it's all... Um, you know, you see things on, on, on about live shows where something will happen on the night and you'll sort of deal with it, and it might take 20 minutes or whatever, and then they all say, oh, it's an actor he takes with him every night. And the, log- the logistics of it would be... <laughs> I think it, my father, actually, I took my dad... My dad didn't really see a lot of comedy, but I took him to see Al Murray about 20 years ago. And, and you know, Al's like the king of... He'll, he'll have, like, 40 people in the room, mm-hmm. and he's learned all their names, and the mm-hmm. whole first hour's just playing them off against each other. I mean, he's got a, he's got a card index in his brain of sort of jokes about jobs, almost. That, yeah. You know, and um, we saw him at a big theatre in London, and afterwards, my dad went, "Oh, it's amazing how he had all those actors in, and he remembered who was sitting where." And I went, "What?" And he went, "Yeah, all those people that are, you know, he, he knows where they're." <laughs> I realised that he thought he thought. Now, my dad was a rep for a packaging company. He worked in business, and yet he'd not thought it through that the actual. The logistical difficulty of taking three dozen people on the road who would be on equity minimum all week just to shout out, I work in crisps or something. <laughs> it would be like, it would cost, it would cost like a sort of Phantom of the Opera sized cast <laughs> for a stand up show. So people, funny audiences, sometimes if you handle something with a plum, they, they assume that it's, um, been faked. Or weirdly with me, if I destroy something on purpose so that I lo- completely lose my thread, because I'm trying to put, put myself into a corner to see what happens, they assume you actually can't really do stand-up. Does, you know? does the reverse ever happen? Now that you have such a, uh, a core audience, I don't remember the exact phrase, but the, uh, uh, the, the cabal or a cadre of oh, yeah. uh, pseudo-intellectuals yeah, that you wish I, was yeah. even more <laughs> exclusive. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, do, but does the reverse happen where people are so on board that you're taking a risk and painting yourself into a corner, you can't actually get out of well, it to your th- satisfaction, yeah. and they're going, oh, well, this is very clever. Well, two things happen there, right? One is that some, this tour feels a bit different to the others in that in a lot of places we play, the audience seem to become a character as well, right, where they sort of respond to things diff- diff- counterintuitively in order to fuck me up, right? <laughs> They'll sort God. of, like, really laugh at something rubbish. Yeah. Sort of sarcastically to sort of... So that I'm then annoyed with them, right? They, because they want... They like they it want, when you're annoyed at them. Annoyed. Yeah, so that's become really good fun. And, it, and it's sort of quite hard to explain to people sometimes that they're sort of having a game as well. So that's one thing that's happened, right, which is really great. Like, they love it. They like to give me unhelpful answers to questions, for example, to sabotage me because they want to see what will happen. I mean, historically, I always felt that audiences in Glasgow and Newcastle were like this. To them, you're like a mouse and they're a cat. They don't want to kill you. They want to keep you alive for their own amusement. They are not actually... No, the, the legendarily horrible Glaswegian audience is not trying to get you off stage. They don't want you off stage. They just want to see you really work. The right? guy in the milder comedian DVD <laughs> yeah. record. I mean, he was... Like, and fair play to you for yeah. sticking with that, yeah, yeah, knowing well, he, that it was being recorded. But yeah, yeah. by the time... His timing, when he eventually it's went... really funny. You're too short of a coffee. You know, know. he <laughs> sewed it together yeah. so beautifully. Well, I'm really happy to... You know, I think if you... I try to treat 
all heckles as a genuine inquiry, right? Because I don't like put-downs. I like seeing other people do them. Mark Lamar was always the master of them when I was starting out, shutting people up in the audience. But I like to treat it as a genuine inquiry if I am puzzled as to why they would say that. And I know where I've got that from. It's from one recording of Ted Chippington, who was a, like... Ed Axel, but with no material you know, in, the, in the 80s. He had nothing. And, um, but he's going, there's this brilliant recording of him going down really badly at a gig. And all the, this is about 1985, and all the audience are chanting, they're going, Who the fuck? Who the fuck? Who the fucking hell are you? Who the fucking hell are you? Trying to get him off. And after each round of it, he goes, I'm Ted Chippington. <laughs> and he answers it. And then he's, going, he's sort of going, I'm Ted Chippington for the third time. As if, as if, the, as if they're asking him. As if it's a genuine inquiry. Yeah. And I find if you treat it as a genuine inquiry, then you're like low status, right? So all their hate is going nowhere. So that's one, or they're, you know, and I'm quite happy in that recording of Mild Comedian Glasgow to let that guy have the thing. It's for the good of the show as a whole, right? And th this comes out of improvisation. It might have partly come out of the two or three years that me and Richard Herring did the double act live, where there's not, even if you put the other person down in an improvisation, you're thinking four steps ahead as to how can they turn it round, you know, whatever. And um, that's partly why, one of the many reasons I never would thrive on panel shows is they seem to be competitive rather than supportive, right? You should be able to step back from something and allow someone else a space and think that they'll return the ball to you. But no one returns the ball on those, as a rule. Mm -hmm. so, um, so that's the one thing about audiences. The other thing about audiences on this tour is it has changed, right? There, there is... The majority of the room are pleased, are excited to be there. They have a sense of what they've come to. And... There's still enough people that are learning the ropes during the hour, the, the two hours, that you can have fun with them. But it has changed. And Al Murray said something a few years ago backstage at a benefit, which I thought was very strange at the time. But now I do understand what he meant. A, a number of other people, and Simon Evans might have been there actually, we were all talking about trying to make things work in rooms. And he said that in his experience, he didn't have to make the laughter. The laughter was already in the room. And it wanted to come out, and he just had to kind of air traffic control it around. And I think that is an indication of a person who's accepted that there is such enthusiasm to see them that that it's it's hard to fail. That they're just kind of they are in control of how the success happens, rather than you know. Is that I, is that like like a sculptor saying the the sculptor is already inside in the rock? The rock. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> with me, I go to great lengths to try and make it difficult. You know, because I, I want them to feel there's something at stake, and I like to create some sort of narrative that isn't written, but is about the evening being won somehow by the audience and the, and me. You know, sort of, and that's why this tour, I've got this thing where I open it in a, in a counterintuitive way, in an extremely hostile way, about saying I'll, I'll break their phones if they use them, and, and it's very matter of fact. It isn't like a sort of opening line. It's partly to deflate the excitement that's happening, to like reset it to normal, to try and make it feel more like you're starting from a position of loss that's got to be won. But I mean, I, I do think it's, it has felt different this one, and it would be dishonest not to admit that. I mean, even on the last tour, someone caught it on a camera phone. There was a guy in Brighton on the last tour who hated it, and we ended up having a sort of 20-minute 
talk yeah, about it's, it. It's, it's labelled Stuart Lee destroys Heckler. Yeah, but I don't the, do the, it. No, you don't at you all. Know, it's the I, worst mislabeling yeah, of and I, and the that's clip. What, again, that's one that I don't like about all those destroys Heckler DV videos. It's like what I think now as a 48-year-old man with two children is that guy, he'd probably paid for a babysitter. Mm -hmm. He might have miscalibrated his alcohol. So he might not have been listening properly. Some word had triggered some annoyance that he hadn't understood. And really, it's how can you extract both of you from the situation that leaves you with a degree of dignity, right? Because it's, and he's made an error, right? He's made a terrible mistake, and he, you kind of don't want to... And a lot of these destroy heckler videos, they end up with someone just shouting, ah, oh, fuck off, bitch, as yeah, the woman... Yeah. Yeah. Walks out the room, you know. Yeah. I think it's really undignified. Horrific. You know? Yeah. There's one today actually. A guy in America, like someone chucks a glass at him for doing a joke about Trump, and he sort of handles it really well, except he tells her to suck his balls, <laughs> which seems like a a breakdown of the political um, discussion. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, I've seen great, I've seen really great destroyer heckler events, you know. Sure. But I, but I kind of think the character of me also. We just think, well, how can they possibly not like this? It's brilliant. What's their problem? They must have failed to understand it in some way, you know. So this is Stuart. Before I go any further, I'd just like to thank Hannah Lucy and everyone at the Octagon Theatre in Yeovil for uh, giving me the space to record this interview. And thanks to James Hingley uh, for his help in setting it up. It's episode 200, ladies and gentlemen. I'm, uh, it's a very, very long one, so I'm going to speak to you for the briefest of moments now and then very briefly again at the end. Um, I'd just like to thank you all for listening to the show, for being part of it, um, for allowing me to record... 200 episodes and listening to them such that it wasn't just me recording them and then uh, uploading them to the, the great big bin in the sky, <laughs> as we call the internet. Um, I, I'll chat to you a little bit about it afterwards. I'm sort of a bit uh, emotional, as you can probably hear. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I think you should all check out, if you're interested in this show and the things it covers, you, none of you should not buy. <laughs> Is that the way around? Everybody should get hold of a copy of How I Escaped My Certain Fate. We, I refer to it a few times in this interview, and I genuinely believe it's the best book about stand-up written. I, I really do. I, I think it's the funniest and the most in-depth, and the stuff that it's talking about is the most... Uh, kind of vivid. I mean, he's an incredible writer on the page as well as an incredible performer. Uh, and I cannot recommend it enough. I really think that as uh, the the blueprints of a thought process, it manages to be completely comprehensive and utterly enthralling and very, very funny itself. And I think if you read it, you'll get a sense of some of the, the line that Stuart likes to tread uh, or feels compelled to tread between uh, the tone of kind of slagging off people who are friends of his and the tone of the slightly more arch persona that, that we describe in this conversation. It isn't always an easy read, particularly if he is brutally attacking something or someone that, uh, that you like. But nonetheless, there is something incredibly invigorating about the, the strength to which he holds to his principles. So I really recommend it. If this uh, interview is piquing your curiosity, that's a good place to start. And of course, you can go and see Stuart live on tour at the moment uh, with his content provider show that is uh, going to be touring for some time yet. 
to my own tour very briefly. I'm thrilled to tell you that I've sold out not only a, a lovely little room in Harrogate, but also a great big room in Bristol. Um, that's the first time I've sold uh, uh, I've sold out 200 tickets in Bristol. It's completely filled, and it, it filled 10 days or two weeks before the show. That is of enormous personal pride and satisfaction to me. Uh, they're tiddly numbers by the standards of some of my guests, but uh, that's still pretty legitimate, guys. <laughs> and, uh, thank you to all of you who are coming along and supporting my tour. Um, Harrogate sold out. It was beautiful. There are still tickets available in Shrewsbury, Glasgow, Darlington, Newcastle and Leeds. And then it's off to Melbourne. So do come and see me in Melbourne. It's just the one hour of the show. Uh, I'm going to do two live podcasts there as well. All of the details at comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour. And uh, and then it's time for the second leg of the tour when I get back after Australia. Uh, I'm going to the West End Centre in Aldershot, uh, which is filling up fast, so do jump in quick if you're near Aldershot. I will be at the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival. Pop in if I'm there. I'm also doing a, a live redacted, non-recorded podcast there. Uh, the Royal and Derngate in Northampton, the Junction in Cambridge, the Lescar in Sheffield, which again, it's a small room, and I think think that'll sell quite well. Chapter Arts Centre in Cardiff, uh, the Old Town Hall in Hemel, Warwick Arts Centre in Coventry, which is always close to my heart because I did so many uh, young people's theatre productions there as a, as a kid, as a teenager. And then finally, tickets are really shifting already in a way that really excites me for the Soho Theatre run in London. That's from the 30th of May to the 3rd of June. All of the details, comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour. And if you'd like to donate to the show, then please do so. I'll read you a very quick quick email from a listener who says I've moved up a level I've booked tickets for Soho on Tuesday the 30th and I'm bringing my wife and two grown up kids I don't know about you but whenever I book something online I look for a discount I use the Vera code as you instructed and save £10 I've been racked with guilt all week I have a reasonably good job what a lovely description and I realised it was you who was missing out so this is Dan Dan goes on to say I've just donated £20 as penance for being bad and trying to cheat you out of your money now Dan everyone I mean, what a wonderful email to receive. Lovely. Listen, if you're bringing you and three other people to the show, you're not cheating me out of anything, nor are you if you simply listen to this show and share it with a friend. I don't want anyone to feel guilty, but I do want your money. So, Dan, I'm happily accepting that. You too can sign up to support the podcast with a regular donation of, for example, £2 or a one-off donation of, for example, as much as you like uh, at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. No hard sell. It's a, a spirit of celebration now with the remains of episode 200. I can't, <laughs> I can't wipe the smile off my face. I can't believe it's been 200 episodes. Now, let's get back to the always interesting, sometimes divisive, very, very funny, Stuart Lee. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you talk about the character of Stuart yeah, Lee, yeah. It, um, and particularly, and this, I think this is the first time I've heard you describe him as he, as opposed to simply, you know, yeah. as a sort of shorthand, it reminds me of um, Vegas talking about, uh, you know, Michael Pennington well, rather talking about. You know Johnny what, Vegas. right? I, I, I think Vegas was a massive influence on me, and I'll tell you exactly the point at which he was. It was about 2001 when he was sort of giving up, really, for a bit, and he. Um, it's, you know, I mean, he, I remember it was not fair, really. I remember seeing him at the Gilded Balloon uh, late at night, and one of these, you know, and the gig had gone a bit wrong. He was supposed to do twenty minutes. He just sort of stayed on for an hour, just struggling, and people hated it. And poor old Mitch Ben was supposed to have gone on forty-five minutes earlier with a band, and was not pleased, you know. But Vegas sort of played the truth of the M- Michael Pennington played the truth of the Johnny Vegas character, mm. and. um the Johnny Vegas character wouldn't have gone off. He would have stayed there trying to be loved, pleading with people. And so in a way, Johnny Vegas never, the act never failed, even if it died, mm. because Michael Pennington played the truth of the character. And what I sort of think, what I've got from that is that the Stuart Lee character, you know, he, he, he sort of, as long as I do what he would do, which is he sort of thinks he's better than other people and that, that why don't they listen to him and, it doesn't really matter if it dies. Well, it would have done anyway. You know what I mean? It's not really anything to do... Uh, it would have been worse if I'd tried to make it work. <laughs> then, it, then, it, then it wouldn't have been real. Is you know? that, do, do you ever regret not naming your character something else? No, not else? at all, because it's not, it's, not, it's not like I do anything else. You know? And also it is mainly... I mean, it's 90% what I would do it's just you create this you have to create this air of separation I think partly why I started to do it as well to think of it as more of an act was when I wrote the, I did this show in 2005 that was all about this sort of being ill and getting into legal battles about Jerry Springer the Opera it was quite a hard one to do because it was a lot of personal stuff in it it wasn't a dead dad show but it was the nearest it was about the death of my hopes which was worse <laughs> <laughs> but um I mean, I did that about 40 times, I suppose. That's about as popular as it was then, maybe 80 times. And then I realised you can't really... Unless you're a method actor, you can't really break your heart every night on stage for real. You know, you just can't do it. Especially now, I might get the babysitter at six and I'm on stage at seven. There isn't time to go into a uh, Stanislavskian <laughs> cocoon of... Uh, so you have to kind of create... So the, so the, by which you mean that the tension is is real. Is that like part of the? That's a thing that you can create. Yeah, just yeah. when you're just on yeah, stage yeah, after yeah, babysitting, yeah. you can make a real. You can make a real thing, and you can you can fabricate the emotions, but you can't actually live them. Which is what I used to do, ten ten years ago, twelve twelve years ago. I can't really do it now. And so, and it's it's also the other good thing about thinking of him as a character is he does things that I sort of wouldn't do. I mean, he'll, he'll dig himself into a hole. I know the way out of it, but he'll dig himself into a hole, and I let him do that, because I think, well, I can probably get him out of it later on, right? So, and it's kind of a way of um, having a different voice involved in the creative process. I sort of split it 
split it in my head and think he I mean he, he sort of says things that I would never say as well because I'd be worried about the consequences and he sort of like let him do those and then you kind of you kind of try and the other part of you tries to pull it back or point it different so it's it's sort of like you have to you have to sort of I talk to some musicians about this improvisers uh, and I, I, I don't really like talking about myself in comparison to them because I think it sounds like you're trying to say you're more than a comedian, you know, like an artist or something. But they, but they talk about that, about trying to play in a way where they don't know what they're going to do next. And I remember seeing Fred Frith from Henry Cow at the ICA, I mean, God, for 27 years ago, playing, doing guitar improvisation, and someone kept trying to take photos in the audience and I've probably written about this, so I do mm. tend to use the same anecdotal. <laughs> so, but he's, I've he, done a lot he, of homework, you know, and I'll, I'll, said, I'll flag when I recognise yeah, them. But he said something about could they stop doing it because he was trying to forget where he was, and they kept reminding him. Yeah, you know, and that is difficult now with cameras. I mean, there's this thing in the new show, or I do the voices of lots of people complaining at me, and it's just the same words over and over again. And like, you can build it, you know. And it's really, it, but the other night, someone in the front row was on a phone. The phone rang, and they ran out, and it, it just sort of took me out of it, and I couldn't get back into it. And then I had to just say to the audience, "What that?" I said, "What that bit normally does, but it won't tonight because that phone rang. It's gone." You know, and everyone was like laughing about that. But you kind of, it is difficult, and, and, and you know, it's not the same now as doing club sets where everyone was drinking, and mm. there's, there's bits that. Have evolved because they were in the controlled space of the theatre where you can assume you can plug away at something for 10 minutes, you know. One of the things I'm really interested in is whether the, whether the, the character of Stuart Lee, just that little ability to step back from it, yeah. helps you improvise. Oh, good, like yeah. Yeah, because I, I find that when I'm, like, I need to try and lose myself yeah, in a thing, yeah, and I, yeah, I often yeah. do that at the expense of pace. Like, I've yeah. got to throw myself in and get giddy yeah. in order to make creative leaps. Yeah. But you seem to be able to hold your nerve for an incredible amount of time. And I wonder if part well, of that is, is yeah. due to being just That's a little like step a, back. Yeah, I think it's sort of... I'm almost amused to see what he'll do. You know... <laughs> So, yeah, you know, and but you, you sort of notice it with. I mean, there's this musician really like Rocky Erickson from the Thirteen Four Elevators, a '60s Texan band, and in the '80s, '70s, people went, "Oh, he went mad!" You know, he was given electric shock treatment. He went mad, and he thinks he's an alien, right? I often think, did he, or did he just get fed up of being interviewed and like <laughs> decide to say that he was from Mars because it was easier than having to talk about his life again, you know. And so that's a thing, actually, the other day someone was talking to me about, would you like to do this project? It was hosting a... Ages ago, it was a while back, actually. It was about hosting a sort of satire thing. And I can't do that because I... I, I can, if I do, like, an arts thing for Radio 4 or something, I can do that as me now. But I can't... I, if I was hosting a sort of comedy thing or a comedy discussion programme, like Frankie Boyle does now, I, I, I couldn't really do it as him because he's not. He doesn't. He wouldn't be interested. He wouldn't in, take direction, or well, he wouldn't be interested in what anyone or, else yeah. has to say anyway. Yeah. So it's sort of, and I can't. I don't want to do it as me because me being me in comedy would sort of undermine the stand-up a bit. I think. Mm. I mean, I know, you always get this you, when you do things like this. 
is you get these people that sort of see the light after that. Oh, I thought he was like, you know, they kind of go, oh, I see. Even sometimes comics as well, they go, oh, right, so it was a sort of joke when you did that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. But um, I had a lot of yeah. people listen to, I interviewed Jimmy Carr, yeah. and a lot of people have said to me since, I'd assumed he was, you know, it really has made me change my attitude mm. towards him. I mean, obviously, these are the sorts of people we're talking about who like to listen to yeah, the yeah. sort of thing that yeah. this is. So yeah. there's not, you know, worldwide. Yeah. But um, but recognising that the kind of bulletproof sniper one-liner right, guy yeah. on stage isn't the same as the comedy-loving yeah. comedy nerd who yeah. goes to Edinburgh and seeks out Yeah, I mean, I've not, I've not shows, really you know. spoken to him socially for a decade, really. But I remember he... You know, you, I think he left... I remember doing a gig at some art centre in Exeter about 20-odd years ago, and he was the open spot support act. And he gave me a lift in a, you know, performance sports car. Because <laughs> he, he was still working for Shell, wasn't he? He was head of marketing or something. So you've got to think he liked comedy enough to to leave that. But I think he had a business-like plan for comedy though because sure. I think, think that he's sort of he's marketable of himself in of himself yeah. isn't he you know and uh, yeah do you obviously you have to live with the consequences of the decisions the character makes on stage <laughs> like <laughs> well you know in the same yeah. way that I think what, the, the split with Vegas and I, I've not had him on the show yet I've sort of talked yeah, to him yeah. about it but from what I understand the sort of allegations of sexual assault from yeah, one woman yeah. when he was being I was, back I was at alien. that gig oh you were there yeah I was okay. at the side of the stage watching it um, and he never touched her but, it, but, but he made it look so um, it, was, it was convincing enough to cause Sure, you know, uh, uh, genuine anxieties for people, and, yeah. I, and I, to be fair to him, I think he's, you know, it's, it takes a while to realise that you're now famous, and that people will, that things happen in an echo chamber in a way they didn't used to, you know, and uh, um, I have to think all the time, if people just start speaking to me, I have to think, oh yeah, everyone's a broadcaster now. And um, it'll go on Twitter or, you know, you, you have to kind of, you have to think, you can't really speak freely to anyone. And you have mm. to think, that that's partly why I'm policing the, the, the cameras thing in the room is, you know, you want, you want the right to make an error of judgment sometimes. And that used to be a lot of really good routines that all sorts of people have got. We've all seen them at stages where they were probably not acceptable. Mm-hmm. But they found a way of doing what they wanted to talk about. Certainly, Al- Alfie Brown, for example, we filmed him for um, for Alternative Comedy Experience. And he did a really good set. But with, but what I felt about it was, without the context of the people of the people being stuck in that room with him, mm-hmm. you couldn't really wouldn't really have been fair on him even to re- to chop it into bits because it was mm-hmm. so. Um, the things in isolation were so inflammatory and over the course of 15 minutes they balanced each other but we couldn't really have run it like that so it was sort of you know that that's um that's do, you know that, get, do you know if that was ever communicated to alfie because i know i know the bit that you mean yeah i don't know i can't remember what bit he did i don't know probably but the um the uh there were lots of things like you know you you do worry about stuff being 
chopped up. I think I, I assume that's why Sadovitz has nothing available commercially, you know, because it can be decontextualized. And if you if you see one of his shows, you come out where everyone in the room has had something that they believe very preciously destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, probably everyone has. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's kind of like it's very fair <laughs> in you, a weird way. You yeah. talked in uh, How I Escape... So, we know when you keep saying the character, when, it's not really, it's, when I say the character, I suppose what it is is there's a, a sort of performance mode that helps you to, to amp up th- things about you, the best and worst parts of you. With me, it's paranoia, envy, bitterness, self-righteousness, intellectual snobbery, and having a chip on your shoulder. And all those sorts of things are... And a sort of, a sort of um, sense of social justice, a sort of like a fury about it, that, that, is, that while acceptable is also hand-in-hand hand with a kind of self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. Right? So all those things are pushed up, but all those things are true of me as well. But I amplify them for, to make that... To make that work in, on stage, and whereas actually in day-to-day life you try to control them because they're not acceptable ways to mm-hmm. interact with people. So you know, it's not like a character like, um, like uh, you know, some pub landlord. No, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, no, not even as much as that. No, but but it's um, but it is. But you know, I'm aware that that you know, you might think something. You think, well, you can't. Oh God! I've just thought that I would never say that. Mm. You think? Well, I could say it on stage because there's the the connection to the thought is much closer, you know. Mm. And um, that's partly people want to see. Okay, I, I don't. I don't go out and try and be the same as all the people there. You know, it's trying to amplify the differences between you and, and also what people understand. And they at least now understand it by the end of the first half if they're newcomers. Is that they are invited to laugh at you on some level. Hmm. There's some really explicit bits <laughs> on some level. Is a funny well, clause you, in that sentence. <laughs> at you, as not just the lines, but also the idea of you know, like there's a bit where I go, you know, the problem I've got now in divided Britain is 50 percent of any audience could have taken a vote broadly against your liberal position. So now I need to write jokes that are funny and of their own right, rather than simply being sentences people agree with, right? And most of the audience laugh, and you can sort of feel as a minority going, "Yes, I expect that is difficult for you," you know. And I've said that. To make this funny, yes. I'm saying I know that that is the perception of me. So I will. I even say, which is a whole new area for me. Then that second, that topper makes usually makes the other people laugh, who are sort of smugly thinking they'd caught you out by not you not realising that what you'd said was incriminatory yeah. in some way. You know, so there must be a danger of, of stuff that operates at the kind of level and metatextual level of some of your stuff there must be a danger of leaving people behind and i would imagine that some of those people you're happy to have left behind some of them and some of those be- people you you are thinking to yourself as the operator you know as the as the performer as the writer you're thinking is there a way to bring those people along well this sounds awful but we've all been in environments where the experience of the thing has been ruined by the people there mm-hmm. right and i you know i went to see patty smith at the roundhouse and it was much better in the old days when she was still forgotten and did smaller rooms because there's people literally standing in front of me with iPads filming it all. Mm. And then they put them away and just start talking to each other. Like, you know, I, don't know, I know Kitson has mega-policed his audience, you know, to the yeah. point where 
a member of the public says to one of us, who's your favourite comedian? I say, it's Daniel Kitson. He's all comedians' favourite comedian. And they go, well, he can't be very good because I've not heard of him. And you go, that's why <laughs> that's he's good. exactly why. Because yeah. you've not heard of him. So you've not been there ruining it, <laughs> like making, him, making it worse. So, you know, the arrogance of people to think that they... You know, so he's he's got to the point, you know, where he can he can crash the National Theatre's website, and he, and no one knows who he is. It's superb, you know. I, I wish I'd had the, I wish I'd had the foresight when I started to think more like he did. But to be fair, he'd seen a generation of us make mistakes, you know, and he was able to sort of work out how to play it better. Is is it just? Is it just not having had the foresight or is there an aspect to which, I mean, presumably with two children to support, you need to do, you, like, well, you can't take the risk okay, anymore. Because well, like, part of me is thinking you could still do that. You know, you could still thin out your audience and try and become as yeah. obscure as possible. You could change the name of the act. You could give yeah, the act well, a secret I mean, name. It's, you know? it's sort of, uh, well, a couple of things about that are I'm expecting... A, a dieback from the crowd now uh, and I've kind of done the maths on it that's partly why I've done this tour for as long as I can to as many people because I think if I tour every two or three years until I'm 65 and I lose 20% of the audience on every tour through not ever doing telly again then that will be just enough to get me through th- to then die <laughs> so that's one thing the other thing is my generation are very lucky in terms of being able to make choices about how we choose to operate Right, because if you're approaching fifty now, if you were a student, you didn't have a thirty grand debt. If you came to a population centre like London or Manchester to try and do stand up, you could probably live in a squat, or you could at least live in a shared house for twenty five quid a week. And if you were me, you could get the second job I got in London was I did freelance research fact checking for a publisher it was flexi time and I did it for 18 months in increasingly small amounts every week until I could flip over to getting paid for circuit gigs and still make a living that job today would be an unpaid internship where Mm -hmm. a 22 year old would be grateful for the experience of working with publishing Uh, what's happened in comedy and um, uh, this was pointed out to me by um, oh that guy he's gone he did he did last comic standing in America um, Matt Kirshen Matt, Matt Kirshen yeah he put it very well to me recently he said in comedy now when when you started when I started the most successful person you knew was Mark Thomas and he was on the same room above a pub as you for the same door split in 1990 now. We're in a kind of 1% economy where I'm at the bottom of that 1% and everyone else is the 99 and everyone else is sort of hoping they might get on a panel show, hoping they might get on these package shows and their, their, their day-to-day living situation is much more difficult because everything's more expensive and the amount of work is massively thinned out because there's so many people paid work and there's this sort of sewer fat jam log blockage of open spots on a on a m25 sort of open spot circuit that seems increasingly distant from the from the center and they were the same in the 80s you know Mm. the open spots were on the same gig as the people that were on on telly and so we we could afford to go i'm not going to do that or i'm only going to do this you could afford to be weird you could afford to because you weren't under the same economic pressure and I have to remember this because sometimes when I look at 
20-something comedians, they seem to me to be desperate. They do loads of social networking. They have to kind of... It's as much about... They spend as much time, it seems to me, about self-promotion and networking and marketing as they do about getting an act together. And then I have to remember why that is. And Mm -hmm. why that is is because they're not able to live in Peckham in a collapsing building for nothing and be sort of airily and loftily... um, uh, ethical about what they will and won't do it's like it's you know the free markets chop the legs out from under that and in a way it's true across the board of all sorts of things you know I mean hospitals have been were told under the last government that they're not allowed to make ethical decisions about which service providers they use they have to just take the cheapest one even if that one's got investment in the arms trade they're not allowed to make that decision so it's happened across the, the board you know but so uh you know whether i would do that now i don't know and certainly having our first child it didn't galvanize me to do work that i didn't want to do but what it did make me do and that's partly what the book came out of the first book i wrote how how i kept my certain fate was trying to work out without selling out and i've just like to communicate to the listener i've done air (laughs) inverted commas around that phrase how can you actually make what you do work and what I had to do was leave big management, strip it all back down to basics and try and do it like punk rock, get in the van and sell your CDs after, you know, to try and work out could you do it from from a base level, you know, without... Could, how, how was I going to make this work now I was responsible for someone else's life, you know? Mm-hmm. So it did, it did force my hand in that way. And um, I was lucky, really, because I don't know... I don't. I don't think I would have done it without that responsibility. One of the things you say in in how I escaped my certain fate, which I was having read reread it recently, and I read it when it came out, and I've been a comedian for much longer now than when I first read it, and there's a much more kind of there's even further yeah. levels. It's a different time though, and it's a really different time now to the time I was writing yes. about. That's the only yes. thing you know. It's when when. A young person here in Yeovil asked me last night after the gig, what's your advice for becoming a comedian? He was doing trite spots. And I went, well, the problem is I wrote this book, and the book is all about, half the book's about the creative process. How do, you, how do I write a joke? And how, what, But half of it is just about trying to live as a comedian. But the point at which I was trying to live as a comedian was very different. The point I started out was socially very different to now, so I don't know how relevant it is anyway. Anyway, sorry, go on. You said, yeah. So, in the book, there's a, a couple of things I wanted to make. I think it is the best book about stand-up comedy well, that there is. Very much. Well, at the time... <laughs> there aren't many, and there aren't many good ones, but it's well, definitely the best. <laughs> well, at the time, that's because I'd read a lot, right? And I... The one that really upset me... Like, I re- there's a book about Dave Allen, and I could never make head or tail of Dave Allen, because I really loved him as a kid. And he's like one of us, but he's from their era, right? Mm. So I sort of thought, how did he write? What did he do? When, and there's nothing in the book at all. I remember you saying the footnote, which tells oh, us yeah, nothing. Right. Yeah. yeah, and so I thought, well, what if you tried to write a book about a comedian? It was about how comedy works. So I felt like... No, I don't actually... There are, since I've found a couple, like Franklin Ajay's one is really good. Frank, what's the name? Franklin Ajay, A-J-A-Y-E, the jazz comedian, he calls himself, from um, America. He's, in, he's a bit part actor in, um, in uh, that Deadwood. He's in loads of little films, but he was quite a big deal in the sort of 70s, you know. Uh, but So, yeah, so try, anyway, go on. Um, uh, you're saying, but, well, I did want to write a thing that was sort of about the mechanics of it as well. Yes. Yeah. 
And in that book, you talk about one of the one of the, the kind of the key moments in the in in your development was hearing Paul Provenza talking about everything on the stage being in inverted commas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you talk about the kind of the sacred circle that the French bouffant clowns would yeah would would draw around themselves in the in the dirt before yeah I, although looking back I think I probably was having a sort of nervous breakdown during that period of my life now I look back on it and I think that um you know we go in search of these things don't we and uh, people that are, people that are losing their mind sort of look for things like and I kind of think. You know, I was I was a stand-up comedian, and I think I needed it to mean something. I think you, and I think it's been very helpful, creatively thinking that it means something. I think you have to believe in it, and um, those sorts of things gave me a way of believing in it. But they were like bolts from the blue. I mean, seeing the seeing the French clowns. I was in France and rural France about two thousand and two or something three, and there were these drama types you know doing a recreation of this medieval tradition which you have here it was Saturnalia in ancient Rome we had it here May Day sort of thing where the people are allowed to make fun of everyone you know and they they did their bit outside the church where they were all dressed up as sex crazed members of the Catholic Church you know they they did that bit a carnivalesque thing in the middle of a circle you know and that was you're in that space, so it's it's a safe it's a safe space, and I and I and I really I think that about comedy that um, I, I am politically correct, and I don't like the a sort of um, unjustifiable use of uh, politically incorrect language. I like it when it has impact for a reason. Um, I tend to react badly to it if it doesn't. Although sometimes, it, if it's funny enough. You laugh before you've made a moral judgment, you know. Mm-hmm. But I do think there is something about that that space being allowed to have that funny space, and I, and I think it's shame when it's punctured by camera phones or by people taking things out of it in fragments, you know. Yes, one of the one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the was whether or not there are other whether whether you see other stand-up comedians as being able to also be sacred clowns as also being able to draw that circle around themselves well loads of people yeah i mean but, honest, but some people and not others well you know yeah I, th- I think i think you get it with a lot of people i also think you get it you, you know you see people you see people trying to do the the, the magic thing of comedy under very difficult circumstances. You know, you see, I mean, Andrew O'Neill, for example, would t- he would rather spoil this by telling you that he's a shaman, right? <laughs> <laughs> but he he manages to do very peculiar things in jongleurs type spaces. You know, he's he, he's he can sell that to. Uh, so there's not there's not a rule about where it happened. I mean, he's he's does a he does a and and you know and, and Nish recently has been doing very you know controversial material that he's managed to make work in twenty minute packages mm. as well. So I think it can happen. It can happen all over the place. You know, I uh, I don't I don't really know enough about the day to day mechanics of circuit gigs at the moment to know. To know where we're at in in terms of a cycle, but certainly when I started out, it seemed like there were a lot of really mad acts about mm. the kind of people that would now be shunted into um, 
something like Alternative Comedy Memorial Society, all those amazing gigs that Martin Soane runs in, mm. in sort of South London, where half the people look like they should probably be <laughs> having some sort of help, you know? Like, that feels like when it was... You you accidentally got to some mad thing and you didn't really know yes. what it was. He's still very capable of creating that atmosphere, I think. You know, but um, sometimes the audiences do it themselves. Like Saturday night in Brighton it was a theatre, and it was it's a it's a feels like the dome feels like you know the temple of culture. But the audience just chose to behave like a late and live audience in 1995. They were sort of mad, and it felt like that. They just sort of arrived and did that themselves, really. And a bit like what mm. Al Murray says, I didn't have to. They made it like a mad ritual. They went crazy and night and steered the show how they wanted it to go. And they were it was really funny, but it wasn't much to do with me, really. I was just sort of there in the middle of it, sort of <laughs> saying things. You know. what, one of the things that struck me as I prepared for this interview was that I was. I get very nervous before interviewing people. Yeah. And before this one, I suddenly realised I wasn't just nervous. I was sort of a bit scared. Wow. And I, and I, I just, just bear with me and I'll, I'll explain why. I don't, I'm, you know, yeah, having yeah. met you and sat down with yeah. you, I'm not really scared yeah, anymore. Yeah. But I did feel that of all of the people I've interviewed, meeting you and kind of creating a, you know, an interview with you, giving you the opportunity to meet me, potentially made me vulnerable. Because well, if, I, if I sort of... If you don't take to me or if yeah. you consider me pretentious well, or something like this, okay. then, then there is a chance that down the line I be casually okay. well, what, what slaughtered would, okay. in what three will, words in a footnote. What will happen at some point, probably, when I'm, into, when I'm improvising on stuff, okay, something will happen in the room and I'll go, yeah, you know, Stuart Goldsmith asked me about that on his podcast. You know, <laughs> I'll just use things, right? And, a lot, yeah. and I'll, you know, it will, it will, and it will, and it, it will be something that will connect with this. Like, so... Because right, okay. Because the person on stage, right, the the comedian of Stuart Lee, his job is he's a comedian, right. So his frame, his immediate frame of reference for understanding the world, is comedy, right. You know, there's loads of people like in the eighties, nineties. A big thing that happened was suddenly there were lads doing the circuit, and they would talk about football or pornography, and that was everything would be filtered through that. Or uh, you know, you get you get people there. What's their angle? You know, and mine is that he only knows about comedy, right. So his his sort of frames of reference are comedians and things like that. So it will pro- it will probably come in, but it won't. It, it, it doesn't, it's only because it's in the sort of threshing machine of things that he knows about. So often people that I would do stuff about or things I actually quite like them, you know. Like and I do a lot. If something surreal happens in the room by accident, I'll like roll, I'll go with it until it's really not working. And then my escape route is if I'm talking about a whale in a hat doing a conger or something I'll go you'd fucking love that if Noel Fielding was doing it you stupid twats if he was here you know oh, brilliant surreal with me you're going I guess I'll say it's easy to do stuff like that oh a bat's gone to hospital and things like that you know <laughs> like, I actually really really love Noel Fielding you know I really really love Noel Fielding it's just a funny thing it's 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 easier to sort of that's what he would talk about the Stuart yes. Lee was only know about Yes. He make, makes that, he's sort of dismissive of it. He's obsessed with it and sort of with what yeah. people, and he knows all about it and stuff. So it's always, you know, and actually you even find yourself, right, there's a things, an interesting thing I've found you can do is you can completely change the energy level in a room by choosing to walk like different comedians, right? Okay. Right, to walk around how they would, right? And the audience get it as well. They sort of know when you're moving like a certain type of person. So you can sort of 
it's like playing a guitar in a there's a great Chris Spedding track called Guitar Jamboree where he does a three minute solo and each ten seconds is in the style of someone different and you totally get who it is and you can sort of do it with just how someone is on stage you know yeah. and like the, the 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 movements of Michael McIntyre of jerky frenetic precision really suit the the material yeah. and the sort of pleading kind of <laughs> like sort of <laughs> sort of a chimp legged stance of Russell Howard suits that sort of pleading meet me halfway kind of stuff you know so you kind of and I find it really f- sort of funny to do that but then he would he he says he's doing it and he knows how to do it so he says he doesn't like anyone but he sort of knows everything and how it works so yeah it will come in the but the Stuart Goldsmith will be some <laughs> bloke who like is <laughs> recorded hundreds of hours of interviews I mean it's sort of become and like about 10 people in the room will, will really you know of the front, the front 50 will really know what that is because they'll be the people that I know, love that you've you know, I love that you've basically taken this on by going yeah I probably am going to do yeah. that because it's, because it's sort of I mean that was what was really like one night when the Daily Telegraph critic was in this is a real a thing that really annoyed me I don't normally let things annoy me but the Daily Telegraph bloke came, Dominic. There's Kevin. two Dominics. One's okay, nice okay. and the other's evil, aren't they? There's, okay. a, there's a good one from the Times and an evil one from the Telegraph. Anyway, the one evil... With two do- dots. Yeah, one the with e- one dot. The evil Dominic came. And I knew the bloke from the Telegraph was in. So I, when the press were in, I don't pretend that they're not. Yeah. I go, right, it's press night tonight, so if you can help me out, I'm going to tell you... I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then that bit's funny because of this. I sort of, I don't try to play it in lab conditions. Anyway, the Telegraph bloke came one night on his own, and a guy in the Telegraph, the TV critic in the Telegraph also writes the funny columns in the Telegraph. And a slightly strange thing happens where he'll review a thing of mine, saying how he likes a bit. Then about six months later, the same sort of idea will turn up in one of his... Oh, his columns, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, and he's and he was recently. He's actually started attributing me, which is better. Okay, he did a thing about people saying you can prove anything with facts, but he said as the comedian Stuart Lee said. So he's sort of mm-hmm. he's meeting me halfway. He's still stealing stuff, but he's at least <laughs> saying. But so I just when when the Telegraph comedy reviewer was in, I just did loads of stuff about. Are you going to write all this down and give it to whatever his name is? You know. And he got so annoyed about it. He, he left at half time and then he wrote this no stars review of it. And it's still like the top th- five searches whenever you do, probably because the Telegraph pay for some algorithmic boost from Google or something, you know, but it's still, and it's just absolutely not anyone else's experience of that night except him, right? And, but he'd chosen to come and he was a critic. So by being there, he changed it. And the, the character of Stuart Lee would be annoyed that the Telegraph were in. So what am I supposed to do? That's the, that's the only way to do it, isn't it? I don't, he doesn't want the Telegraph in, and he doesn't want Telegraph readers to come. So he would do that, right? And so it's sort of... Um, uh, I know, don't know what the scientific to, term is, but it's like the act of observing the thing yeah, has changed, changed the, the thing. thing. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah, so he should have given it a really good review, because he said he did what he would do if I was there, and I was. <laughs> That's a five. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're talking about the, the threshing machine of the, the, the context that the, the comedian Stuart Lee yeah, yeah. is aware of, all yeah. of those sorts of things, I do think that well, one of the reasons that, that How I Escape My Certain Fate is such a strong piece of work because you manage to, like you are incredibly good at having your cake and eating it know, and yeah. having it again and eating it again. Yeah. 
and I think one of the ways, one, one of, the, one of the, the areas for me, when I've seen your work, which I've seen you live over the last 20 years. Oh, I didn't know that. I saw, yeah, I saw oh. the, I remember seeing the, the one where you talked almost exclusively about the platypus uh, being a monotreme. Oh, God. Was that in like in Edinburgh. or yeah, something? Yeah, well, was that as the last one I did before I stopped for It was something ab- years. about the world or all around yeah. the, I don't remember the name yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know what? I'll tell you why. I, probably why I gave up was during that run, I was really starting to get somewhere in terms of sort of losing the crowd and bringing them back. I remember this one night where I'd kind of got 20 minutes where half of them were like, what's going on? And I was keeping the ones that were on side in on, then I got it back. And I, I was working 10 minutes ahead in my brain all the time thinking, if I do this here, I can do that to that person later. And, I, and then I got reviewed in the independent. It was like two stars and they went, at one point, he loses the crowd for 20 minutes. He's so bad at this. For one point, he loses the whole crowd for 20 minutes, and then miraculously, it manages to come back. I thought it wasn't miraculous. It was like I I'd sort of was trying to do that, mm. and I did it. And I thought, God, this is pointless, Like because actually the thing that I feel is where I'm going, they think it's a, a mistake or that it's happened by accident. But actually, that, and then I... And now that's the sort of thing people like, that feeling of it, it appears to be going nowhere and then it does, you know. So um, I did did stop for a bit after that. It was probably the monotreme bit. That's <laughs> a good bit. The you know, weird thing about that is, of course, that might have been quite a good show. I don't know, I can't remember, but I haven't got the, the, the notes for it and no one filmed it or recorded it. And it's weird because now everyone would, even mm. for your own reference, you could just put a machine like this on or... Mm. It's weird all the stuff that's lost from the eighties and nineties, kind of. But the so in in the anyway in the book, yeah, yeah. no, I mean, there's, having your cake and eating it, having your cake and and having it again. Yeah, like you're yeah. so good at explaining. Like this is a thing that I said in the text, and for people who haven't uh, yeah, read yeah. it, which I, I yeah. hope all of my audience will have a yeah. copy. Um, but it's the the text of. Uh, the transcripts of three stand-up shows yeah. with copious footnotes explaining the uh, the context of them, what you were thinking at the yeah, time, yeah. all that sort of stuff. It was, it was brilliant. Although, again, to get bogged down in this, the, the person writing the footnotes yeah. doesn't really <laughs> like the person doing the act yeah the well this is, this is exactly my point because you are able to yeah. uh, explain that, that i wouldn't do that yeah. again i yeah. wouldn't do that again yeah. and also at the same time you're able to insult yourself yeah. the people you're talking about you're able yeah. to insult the people that you're insulting on stage yeah. in a different way and, I, and I, <laughs> you know yeah. it's like a multi sort of multiply pronged attack yeah but but i do think there is a difference in tone in I, I think as a reader, I can kind of ascertain when you when you are calling your wife Bridget Christie greedy, <laughs> yeah. you know I mean, or when you're referring to Kitson as a bald, <laughs> you know, bald, bug-eyed woman-hating racist. Yeah. It, there is a difference in tone when yeah. you're slamming someone you clearly love, yeah. and when you're doing a longer bit of material which is in inverted commas yeah. which is about a pu- figure in the public eye or maybe yeah. another comedian yeah. and and it's just it's interesting to me and I think you are aware that it's mm. fascinating and uh, unnerving to the comedy circuit if that exists the comedy community if that exists yeah. the, the difference in tone now I've in going back I've just been swimming in your stuff for the last month and um, and I really thank feel- you by the way because often you kind of when you do these you just sort of think I, I got interviewed by James Nocte who'd clearly never seen anything I've done <laughs> and was and it was basically working off Daily Mail reviews so it was really hard to say you couldn't even really do the interview because all these basic premises were they were fake news fake <laughs> news fake news sad but anyway go on yeah sure so yeah. um 
you're aware of the uh, the the implications and the the consequences of letting the character Stuart Lee go for it. Yeah, well, there's a lot, there's there's there have been situations where I was I was I loved I love doing um, Goreway Festival. Yeah, um, and I I like what I mainly like. I like Kevin who promotes all those gigs in Ireland, and I love <laughs> Kevin. The room, yeah, and I love the rooms in Galway I love the Roisin dub there and I love and then what I like to do in Galway is go off on my own and I go because all the pubs have these amazing musicians in them just playing and I like to you know get a pint of Guinness and some Irish whiskey and sit there in a kind of uh, days imagining that I've connected with my ancestors <laughs> and I really really love Galway and I, anyway I did I did a gig at Galway a couple of years ago and then it was during the comedy festival and um, I went in the bar immediately outside the venue and there was someone I know there who I really like but it was with this sort of friend who was really drunk and it was a bit hard work then I, then I thought oh, I'll go up to where the comics are and then another one told me everyone who was in there and they were all people that I'd done like jokes about and I thought Oh, I can't really go there. It'd be really awful. <laughs> I had to sort of go off like on my own because I couldn't wander around because I couldn't really, I just couldn't really face it. You know what I mean? So it's funny, like you, you kind of, um, you can become, sometimes it's sort of difficult. I, I, um, but other times I think I don't really understand it because like uh, there's, people that have done a thing about me or whatever that I, I think it's funny, you know. I don't, I don't like it when, I don't like it when stuff's sort of made up about things I've not said or whatever, but I don't do that. The, the things... I mean, there was a funny thing where I'd... I was doing this sort of parody of how Russell Brand talked about racism. And the good thing about doing stuff for the BBC or DVD release is obviously it gets checked by lawyers, so they go through everything really carefully. Actually, there's something else interesting about this, but... So, there's, for example, certain times I've quoted Cameron or whatever, and they've gone. He didn't exist. Two words are different, and they have to. Mm. You have to get it. You have to turn everything around. It's not quite as funny, but it's accurate, you know, for law. Anyway, there was this thing I'd made up of Russell Brand saying racism made his winkle go small or something. Yes, yeah. And they said you can't say that because he didn't say that. And when it's like a parody of in a room, people would have understood that. Mm. So then I did this thing where I cut in this interview with Johnny Vegas where he's really having a go at me about how I misquote people and lie about people. And I end up saying that it doesn't matter that he didn't actually say it because the essence of it is true and that it's up to me to decide what should... So I build myself up as this arrogant character saying that my jokes are more important than the truth, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously, like, it does two things. It has its cake and eat. It covers the legal implications of the misquote, but also makes it makes you can have the funny joke but then you make it a character joke about the arrogance of me mm -hmm. the writer thinking that I'm at liberty to misrepresent people for comic effect and um, but you there's a clip of that floating about on YouTube and there's all these pricks underneath going Vegas has seen through him you know <laughs> he's called him out on what an arsehole he is and like before the thing I said to him you've just really got to go for this yeah. right and don't let me off the hook and also like I would put out a thing on my own DVD that made me look really stupid without knowing that I, you know, and I, this thing, my my sister is very worried about the hostility that Chris Morris displays to me on. Um, <laughs> said, Why do you have that man picking on you? you know, it's like sort of I've not got any control over it. It's sort of, but actually, the interesting thing about fact checking that 
where we're at now with comedy is this is a problem we've got now if you're a liberal comedian liberal comedians come out of tradition of liberal satire and liberal satire tends to be you know on legitimate news uh, radio um, through the BBC through the Guardian whatever through um, you get a DVD out everything's got to go through lawyers so you can say some mad thing about Cameron or Bush or whatever but you you have to the, the, the stuff that platforms it has to be true you know whereas the right right comedy now just coming through blogs through Twitter whatever it's unregulated so there's no sort of um, they're not accountable in any way so they can be much more extreme and attention grabbing people like Milo what's it you know mm. um, because they're not going through these conventional channels that we've all come through where uh a sort of a joke about an issue would be fact checked on some level mm. you know the BBC have been very on that were very hot on that with me I, I the the punchline could be a generalization or an exaggeration but the, the 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 start point had to have a relationship with with fact with the start point the start point that sets up the funny article on some Breitbart website can be utterly untrue and then move on from there you know which is again why people are going oh they don't have chubby brown on telly because he's politically incorrect it's not just that it's that a lot of the things he's politically incorrect about are not true <laughs> so yeah. if he says there's 10 million uh, you know there's 10 million Islamic immigrants all living on benefits and then a funny thing about them yeah the first bit's not true so he needs to find a, fu- a, a factually accurate way into the funny bit about how they wear their hats or whatever he's doing, you know, but it's so, uh, it's sort of, um, it, so what well, is all those things? They do, they do eventually get run past people. I mean, that thing I did about, about, um, James Corden and, uh, Graham Norton, I did a thing in the last series where I'd gone to the BAFTAs and I was beaten by a chat show. I was really annoyed about it. Um, I mean, the weird thing is, I had won a BAFTA the year before, mm-hmm. but I didn't mention that because it wouldn't have worked for the. Mm-hmm. I had to, and the thing about James Corden, the reason I did that about James Corden, or this thing about James Corden, he's always saying how much he likes me, but he didn't stick up for me at the BAFTAs, and he should have got the BAFTA off. Yeah, I'm not, what, what? Right, James Corden was always, you know, was saying in interviews that he thought was really great, and people at the BBC were saying that he'd he told them that I that he wanted to do really like my show and everything. Then I was at the... I used to do this bit on stage, but I cut it for time in the end. I was at the King's Head working out the stuff for that series in King's... in Crouch End. And, and Pete Graham said to me, oh, you just show you know, James Corden's wanted tickets and he's rung me up and I've let him in. And I went, oh, well, where's he sitting? Because if he's, like, in the audience, it'll really f- fuck it up because everyone will be looking at him. I went, oh, he's just sitting in the dark in the corridor bit. And I thought, well, I don't want to talk to him because it'd be awkward for him as much as anything. And also, it'd be weird for the audience. So I just sort of pretended not to notice him because I didn't want to have to have a conversation with him. But I had to squeeze past him five or six times in and out of this thing. Then I then that's what made me think it would be funny to... Because I know he really did like me. He'd come to this circuit gig, so I thought it'd be really funny to moan about him liking me and to, to say that he'd let me down by not fighting Graham Norton and stuff and apparently he was upset about it but I thought 
he would think it was funny. But actually, when, I thought he would think it was funny to be sort of to realise that his presence had sort of gone into this story. And I do it with a lot of people that say that they like, that they like me. I'm read about them, and to be honest, people do it. Do it to me. I mean, I really like the fall, and I don't know what Marky Smith thinks of me <laughs> well, at all. I mean, but he's always snagging of... me off on stage. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I went to see them in May this year, and he did this sort of one twenty-minute track, which it was normally about eight minutes, but they extended it massively. It seemed to me to accommodate a sort of three-minute <laughs> attack on on me. There's people in the standing next to you. That is when you know, when like, you said, it made me laugh. To be honest, I thought it was funny. You know, when like, you said that you had the opportunity to talk to James Corden in that moment, yeah. and you didn't want to, yeah, is that? Is that kind of the crux of it? Like, you could yeah. have just popped in and said, Hello, mate, I yeah. know you like me stuff. I know, but I'm going to do some stuff. It's much... Right, the problem is, right, that if you're sort of... If you're in the world of them, you can't operate as as freely. You know, you can't operate as freely because you're sort of compromised by your relationships with people. In, in the so same in a, way as like a comedy critic can't be friends with yeah. comedians. So in a way, you, uh, you have to make a sort of lonely life for yourself because he and he wouldn't do that. Really, the person on stage wouldn't do that. He'd, he'd he would take it as a sign of their weakness that they had come to see him, wouldn't he? You know. And does it compromise so, the person on stage if you have a little, said hello to yeah, James Corden? Because you would then you would he would be vulnerable to James Corden sitting in the audience and going, "That's not what you said yeah, on stage." You have to keep out of it all, you know, and and um, you have to keep out of it all. But it's true. Anyway, is, is that is that lonely? Do you feel yeah, do, in terms but, well, of the comedy community, well, do, um, you, you're sort of self ostracised for the for the higher principle yeah, of being a, able to do the work? Yeah, in some way, but but also it's awkward now. Anyway, the, 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 it's difficult. There's, I don't think I'll do circuit gigs again which I'll miss and it's awkward for all sorts of reasons and one of them being something that's crept up on me which I never realised which is if I do a circuit gig and everyone else in the room at the back is 27 it's just awkward it's like the teachers turned up at the sixth form disco and they don't really know I feel like I've ruined it for the, I've ruined their night out by, by being, being a, old or by being you my, but both by being me and old you know and I and for, you know, for years people say to me, oh, I did a gig and all the acts sounded like you. And I was not really aware of this. And I, don't, I think it's not, it's changing now anyway. But, and a couple of times I was on and there'd be someone on who was exactly like me. I thought, well, that's really weird. And particularly about 10, 10 years ago it happened that the first person on did me exactly and moved around the room in the way I would. And I thought, you know what, right? You think you're homaging some... But the problem was, at the time, I was living in a one-bedroom flat over a shop, and the, the critical acclaim of me was massively disproportionate to my earnings, as it was until fairly recently, to be honest. And, and yet, I thought, you can't just do me, because I need, I need to do me mm. to make a living out of it. I can't have everyone else doing it and, like, watering it down. That was weird. I mean, that's, um, that's one of the markers of being so influential. I'm sure Kitson thinks the same thing when he sees someone do <clears throat> observational comedy about emotions. It's hard for them, though, because a lot of them try to do him. And, in the or, end and they, sometimes not even knowing that they're no. trying to do it. It's just that's what comedy is. That's what in the, the end, best you, stuff you, is. You have to stop because to do, to do Kitson, you have to live Kitson's life, which means... No one wants to do that. <laughs> no one wants to do that. So, you know, it's hard. It's sort of, you can sort of, it often provides a gateway for people. 
Yeah. But they uh, tend to do different things. I felt, I, do you know, I felt I'd slipped up when I sent you the second to last email I sent you. Right. And I was, uh, we were trying to organise yeah, a meeting. Yeah, yeah. And I said something about different profile. And I talked yeah. about my, the nerds that listen to this show right, right. coming and talking. To, I said, you know, I've got so much easier than you. Yeah, yeah. that They can talk to me um, and then leave disgusted in their oh. hubris. I haven't <laughs> spoken to a person. And as I sent it, I went, oh God, that's no, a bit no. stew, isn't it? That's a bit yeah, like sorry. you talk because yeah. I've grown up listening yeah. to you, you know. Well, I mean, that, it, it, you have to just, it's just a bit like what I find now is being around. I have to be sort of presidential. You know, you have to be really, you have to be really careful. You don't say anything that can be. Well, I was out the other night and I actually bumped into some people I knew uh, who work in comedy and um, they were they were all laughing about how they didn't like one act. And then another person there was someone was from a big agency, and I thought I can't appear to express any opinion on this. Yeah. Actually, as it happened, I thought the act they were talking about was good, so it didn't matter. But but I couldn't laugh along with anything because that would become a thing mm-hmm. for that person. They would go yeah. away and say he was doing this, you know. So I have to be. And about about some five or six years ago. There was. I started getting emailed all the time by newspapers, saying, "Would you like to write or interview this comedian that we all think is really great, who um, you told him to become a comedian and and said he should move to London and become a comedian?" And I went, "Did I?" And they're going, "Yeah." And it was not. It was from Scandinavia, and it was no one I'd ever heard of. Right? I'd never even seen him. And then his press release comes, he's got, he moved to London at the suggestion of Stuart Lee, who told him to go there to do stand-up. And so all these journalists are ringing me up. Then I worked out what it was, right? When I did Carol Beer's Club in Paris in about 2005, this comedian was working behind the bar as a barman. And at the end of the night, he said to me, I've never seen stand-up before. That was really good. If I wanted to be a stand-up, what should I do? I want more for starters, move to London because there's loads of clubs there and that's a good place to start. Yeah. And that became that, right? That, that, that I'd personally sort of mentored this figure, mm-hmm. right? So, so you have to be, you have to like really, really be on it. And also, I can't remember where everyone is now either. No, of course. Like, there's thousands of them and they all look the same to me. <laughs> yeah. All the, all, and also, I watch a lot of kids' telly with my kids. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the 20 something comedians are on kids' telly as well. And so sometimes I see someone, I think they're from Milkshake or something, but they're actually some major new Avalon signing or <laughs> I, can't, I can't. Everything's all, you know, you, there's two, there's two, so it's actually difficult to be anywhere. Yeah. Is is there an argument that suggests those sort of abuses of like that guy, this this uh, yeah, Scandinavian yeah. act, um, that those sort of things are the price you pay for being so well respected, well, and well loved? Like your name carries weight, so well, obviously some people are going for, to exploit first that, of all, I don't, and that doesn't yeah. necessarily reflect. I on don't you. think I am. Uh, I think uh, this idea that I'm well loved and well respected is a. I don't feel particularly well loved, and I've got. Six hundred thousand words of uh, of dossier of on. Uh, yeah, right, so, okay, yeah. I really want to talk about. <laughs> okay, then the next gone. thing. Okay, the next one. thing is respected. Is you know, let's look at the facts of it. Right, I couldn't. There was there was never any enthusiasm from one series to the next at the BBC to recommission it. They sort of would do in the end. 
because the sheer weight of a claim would have made it embarrassing. But it was always difficult for the comedy department to get it through. The um, people come up, people come up to me. Even people that work for Comedy Central come up to me and say, "Would you do another alternative comedy experience?" And I say no because if you remember, your head of something made a statement in the Guardian about why they'd cancelled it, and it was because. He said, it's all very well having clever, clever, Stuart Lee-type comedy, but we don't find it's downloaded massively. We don't find the clips are downloaded massively in their thousands by the target 16 to 24-year-old uh, demographic. <laughs> That's what they said. Right? So this sort of thing is... What, what is true is that I am able to tour to far larger amounts of people than most people realise, because yes. I'm not on things. I, I don't get... I don't get recognised all the time, like mm-hmm. people that are on things. When I do get recognised, it's more difficult because the people normally have more of an opinion about you. Sure, you know, either positive or negative. But uh, you know, I can't. I can't. I don't have a carte blanche to get the things I want to make done. You know, and um, and I think that um, I think that uh, in a way, it was lucky that the series was cancelled because I felt like I was starting to become a sort of obstruction that um. I felt like people think, well, he's he's sort of got that position that you're allowed to do good comedy in, you know. And I'm really glad that um, when they cancelled it, I thought, well, hopefully they'll spend the money on something else that isn't just more of the same. Mm-hmm. And they've got this thing now where Nish is doing some thing with a daily mash, and I kind of hope something like that would fill the mm-hmm. gap, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, so it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like that. I mean, but it feels all, like, all of those things, yeah could be sort of, if you just looked at them all and not in the right order, but yeah. basically almost no one gets carte blanche to do whatever they want. Yeah, almost yeah. no one. Yeah. And you accept that you have huge critical acclaim, right? Yeah. You claim the weight of that was important. Yeah. And uh, you have an enormous ticket-buying public who have a very, like, they're not, like you said, they're people who come again and again and again. Yeah. And there are tens, hundreds of thousands of I think of even them. the audience annoys comedians. Like, if, uh, if, I, if I go on a circuit gig... Right, I always say to them, don't say I'm on, right? And I never used to do that. Actually, I don't say don't say I'm on, because it used to annoy me when there's, um, there was an act who cannot be named, and it'd be someone yeah, you didn't know who the yeah, fuck yeah, he was yeah. anyway. I've always thought that's to do with tax. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I've yeah, always right, assumed yeah. that's to do with there not being a record but, of visas or something. So, you know, then, so they, the little club that you're doing is really pleased that you're doing mm-hmm. it. But I do loads of them. So they send it, first of all, to their mailing list, and the mailing list sells out. Mm-hmm. Then the other comics that are on say, I didn't go very well tonight because your audience are here and they're really judgmental. And they, so <laughs> they've a, got high standards. They even different. hate the audience. You know, but, so but, the audience are blamed for but, making other but people. This is a, none of this detracts from what I'm saying, which is that well, by any of these metrics, you yeah. are an enormous success. Well, you I mean, are. I'm, I'm like, you know, and, and more importantly, yeah. more importantly than any of those metrics, yeah. th- like the influence, the influential quality that you have is you have changed mm. people's lives and careers and artistic aspirations yeah. and all the rest well, of it. You 100% Well, I'm not have. aware of that. You, know, you I, have, well, surely you have to accept. I can't believe well, I'm arguing with you to tell I'm you how great you are. I'm not aware <laughs> of I'm not, no, I'm, not, I'm not aware of that. I'm, I think, but I th- again, I think it's probably awful what's happened but, because... because you know, I can't, we're not. In, it's not the eighties, nineties anymore. You know, there's not. I, in a way, you were, you were able to sort of do certain kinds of th- things because the economics were different. You know, and I. I yeah, but you can accept that Kitson yeah. is brilliant. Well, right? he, uh, he will have. He probably has changed lots of people's lives, and you see it in things like 
that sort of theatre crossover guy that did that show, Team Viking. Uh, oh, you know that. that yeah. uh, well, there's there's a lot of people who've taken Kitson-esque things into more like th- solo theatre and whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, he certainly uh, helped the beard catch on. Yeah. A, um, <laughs> he's 100%. A, he's a beard we can lay pioneer. most of that he's a beard pioneer. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, well, to be honest, he, didn't, he really inspired me, actually, which is during the sort of period that I'd given up. I mean, I'd always thought it was good, but I saw him a couple of times between sort of 2000 and 2004. And um, the, the, uh, the, the, the model of it, in that he wrote a new show every year, toured it around, knocked it on the head and then did another mm-hmm. one and that was it. And also the fact that he, he didn't, he'd stopped worrying about who was, you know, about getting big audiences and was just, really what, it was, it's, you know, I, yeah, I can see that he, I can see that he would inspire people. But I think that the thing is, I, you know, I've lived a charmed life really and, and, and that there's all the, th- you know, in the, in the book, I was very, up front about the fluky things that happened. Yeah, you know, absolutely, that, that, but but fluky that, things happen to everybody. Like yeah. Kitson was brilliant, but it really helped that he won the award early. That he yeah, won and the then Perry and then rejected it. And then rejected it. Yeah. So it, it, you know, it, it's the role of a I mean, dice who could, wins. There might maybe six people yeah. get nominated. They're all great. Yeah. But it, he still might not have won it. Everyone's got flukes. Yeah, but you know the, what? The, the thing point, about a, a Perrier doesn't always mean. No, people, no, absolutely. You know, Winning a thing doesn't. But yeah. but the point I'm trying to make is that any objective listener to this yeah. interview. I mean, it it sounds like some version of kind of career dysmorphia well, where you can't accept that actually, like, why can't you? What what else could you have that you don't? Well, um, what what else could you have that you that you well, that you want? That nothing you don't now, have? right? And that, that and that again is partly why after this, I need to stop and work out what is the right thing to do creatively and sort of ethically with it as well, right? Because what I've tried to do recently is meet the demand for audiences. For a couple of reasons. One, so that I've got this platform for the future. I get as many people to come now. Secondly, I want to defeat ticket touts, and it amuses the fuck out of me. Like they buy ten tickets for Salford Keys because it's nearly sold out. And, and try you know sell. which tickets they are. Yeah, I know which I've seen are. This and then, on the I, then I put yes. an extra date on. Yeah. Bang, gone, and they're stuck with hundreds of pounds worth of stuff that they can't ah, shift. You know, so I really nice. like. I, I like that. And I, I, I hate them personally because they sometimes get in touch with you and they're really rude to you and patronising. Uh, and I find them on the internet and contact them and say, stop selling my stuff. And they go, I'm helping you out, you fucking cunt, by driving up your... They don't understand anything about... So um, so that's one thing. But the, then the, So the next thing is, right, I either have to do less shows and not everyone that can come can come or I have to start doing the O2 and stuff, right? And the thing I think about that is maybe you can do it, but in a way that has some kind of relation, critical relationship with the idea of a stadium gig, right? And that oh, would, that would right, be interesting. You know, so it would be, yeah. And that, but that is a big project which would need um, more than just me and James Hingley in a van. <laughs> <laughs> the country might need, um, <laughs> might need. We've got a set. You know, well, the thing about the shows idea. with sets is I always think. Can James Hingley get them into a white van? You know, because I like to keep the, the touring unit <laughs> yeah. small. And again, it's not just about being mean about money. It's also about the dynamics of being on the road. It's much easier with two, you have quite good fun with two people. Sure. But beyond that, it becomes like you're some people's boss, and you've got to decide who's having dinner. And you know, I hate it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so but, you could sit, you could kind of do an arena ironically. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, I think you put something out. You put something else on the screens, like. I mean, I don't want to talk about it too much because yeah, 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 I've got ideas for it. 
but then the other thing that's happened is there's sort of there's some sort of thing of like can you do stand up on telly but not have it commissioned through comedy departments because they seem to be the people in comedy commissioning don't always seem to like, like me. Like Alan Moore making porn well, rather than making know, sexy comics and getting told they're porn. Yeah. He goes, no, this is porn. Yeah, exactly. Right, because a lot of the, a lot of the, all the, pe- the people in arts and documentary and drama like me a lot more than the, than the people in comedy commissioning, I think. It's weird, you know, they're kind of, so they always want it. And I got loads of outstanding commissions from theatres and stuff, but I mean, it's, but where people have said you want to develop, I mean, it's like five really, Top places have said, if you want to develop work, you can. But really, I like stand-up. And I also... You know what you're saying about Alan Moore saying, this is porn, Mm -hmm. right? Okay. Dave Gorman did an interesting thing years ago where when he... Dave... I mean, younger listeners won't remember, but Dave Gorman is one of the people that changed what stand-up could be in Britain. And he, he started doing long form shows but they weren't what Sean Hughes or Greg Fleet had been doing which were narrative things they were docu- almost like documentary comedy about an idea and he'd support the images with slides or you know fa- fan material and then that sort of became a thing that lots of people do suddenly five years later it was to do the technology as well suddenly five years later everyone was firing images off a laptop and blah blah but he found it useful to insist that venues around the country didn't bill it as stand-up comedy because even though it was, he felt people come in with a different set of expectations, right? What I've tried to do is the opposite of that, is some of the things I do steer perilously close to performance arts or theatre, right? But I don't call them that. I always call them stand-up because then people come along thinking it'll be fun, you know, and like there's a half an hour in the last TV series that to all intents and purposes was, if I developed it in a different thing, it would be a performance piece about the nature of performance. Being where I'm imagining I'm seeing ghosts and my, mm, and mm. you know, there was like 20 minutes dead air in that of like it all building towards this payoff. It was really about the performer's self-indulgent idea of them as some victim whose suffering had informed their work, you know, and it, and, it, and um, you know, but it was interesting trying to do that to people on a Saturday night. You know, that's more interesting than doing it at the ICA, really. The sort of, can you do it in this place? If you, know? you if you did manage to, like, what would be a marker for you? Do you think there is a marker? Is it possible that you will do a thing that makes you go, that was a success, or I'm a success? Or well, that, that kind of... This, this show is different to other ones. Again, the night you came oh, was a high pollution day and die had a heart attack or something. Yeah. <laughs> so you did, but the, this show is much livelier. It's more straightforward. Um, you really look like you're enjoying well, yourself. Well, yeah. I mean, I, 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 even part, though you were particularly yeah. truculent, I mean, you, know, you were partly very hard I am us. enjoying myself, but also I kind of felt that it's not a lot of my audience are as everyone who hates them says they're guardian reading liberals they're having a bad time at the moment those people their values are being trounced the society they feel they voted for and worked towards is being systematically dismantled i didn't feel like it was necessarily the time to spend an hour attacking their values and then 45 minutes of the second half attacking my own yeah i felt like it was time for them to have fun right so this show is different today. it's not a step forward it's a sideways step into a different kind of thing so yeah that's it does feel worth doing because it's changed whereas the fourth series of um, Comedy Vehicle quite deliberately although I've seen this said as a criticism of it was an attempt to take all the things I've been doing for the past few years to an absolute extreme mm. level you know and um Whereas this is different, I think that one of the exciting things about next time I do a stand-up tour is the world will be different 
um, can you be sort of ironically un-PC in a world where being un-PC is actually the dominant political narrative? Mm-hmm. I think people have got to think really carefully about that. Um, and a, 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 someone I know who writes for a famous comedian was sad that their, well, more than sad, was distraught that their um, <coughs> ironic anti-liberal bit <coughs> had, the, had become a thing that got literally tens of millions of hits on a Breitbart website, mm. you know, mm. because we can't control context and we sort of forget, because you live in the liberal bubble of the circuit, that um, that the world's really changing fast and that those values are... So be, And uh, uh, the husband of an American comedian that I know said that th- this comic had done things five years ago, ironically, about race, because she had friends of all different races, mm-hmm. which she felt entitled to, that she didn't know if she could do them now, post-Trump, because they would seem like an endorsement of mm. the mainstream political view, rather than a piss-take of what was a sort of a unpopular one. Mm. So, I mean, the next show will be different because of that. As you don't know... Again, the character of me has changed, because he's... the the power balance in the world has changed in relation to him and people like him so that would be interesting but you've, you've I've asked me something that has made me think is what more do you want well actually nothing and I've, I say this I get <laughs> then really, why aren't you happy I know I get, I get annoyed with my wife about this because she goes oh why can't I I go well you know what you've, you're selling out Brighton Dome you've only been on TV once and that was on I've I Got News For You and by your own admission it was awful because Jack D did a joke about her tits or something as the opening line, which puts you at a bit of a difficult position for the next half hour. But um, uh, but so, you know, I do find myself saying this to other people, and I find myself saying it to all sorts of comics at the very idea of uh, even making a living out of it on any level is off the scale amazing. But with me now, yeah, you're right, it's really, you know, th- this tour will b- balance a lot of the books I've just really ought to be concentrating on staying alive long enough to um, look after the kids as they grow up. So I probably need to, you know, do a bit less gigs and lose some weight. But the, um, but yeah, I mean, that really, it's a, it's a choice of what you can do. I mean, the thing I do regret though is, is it's, I don't, you know, I, I, it's hard to know what's going on in comedy now because you can't be incognito anywhere either. Mm. You know, you can't. And if I think, oh, I'll just pop down to Soho Theatre and see this show that's on for three nights that everyone said that was good in Edinburgh. It's like, oh, he's come, uh, mm. you know, and it's sort of, like, you can't kind of, um, you can't get a handle on it and uh, you can't sort of, and if you, if you, if you make a list of 50 people you think's good for a magazine, the 750 you haven't mentioned are annoyed, even mm-hmm. though there's like, mm-hmm. even though you've gone through all sorts of, you know, so it's sort of, it's, um, it's difficult and the the other thing as well is what to write about because you don't I don't have adventures anymore uh, mm-hmm. you know I mean Phil Phil Nichol wrote a lot of great shows out of having adventures and he was able to Ex- extend the period of adventure that normally ends in one's life about the age of 35 well into his late 40s you know he had adventures I've never been the sort of person that really has adventures and and a lot of my crises in my life now are about the children's relationship with their school or with with experience of being bullied or they're about our relationship as a family with people we have to interact with and you can't really write about those because 
I don't think it's fair uh, to to bring other people. If I write about someone else now, then it's not like when I was just doing it, you know, in a cellar 30 times to 50 people, people will see it and they go, then it's not fair on them. I don't think it's fair to to leave a sort of trace of some emotional interaction with some person who maybe didn't know they were becoming... I, I do have issues with this about a lot of these confessional shows. I I worry that in 10 years' time, you're going to think, oh, God, I wish I hadn't changed that person's life by making them the focus of something, you know. But so things don't happen to me. And in a way, the, 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 it doesn't matter in a way, because the, the act, it's about he's trying to be a, a comedian, so there's always the struggles of that. But it is increasingly difficult to know what to write about. And I think this sort of global political crisis will maybe have something but I I don't there are things that happen to the kids that I would love to write about but I can't because they're in schools and it would be about their teachers or their although in the in the comedy vehicle last series a lot of things that were happening to my kids reminded me of things that happened to me mm-hmm. like being kicked into urinal and urinated on at infant school which I'd forgotten about Unsurprisingly, I'd managed to suppress that memory. <laughs> and then I thought, it, so they do, you kind of end up writing about them by writing about yourself, yeah. in a way, because you, they make you think about things. But I just don't know, you know, I have a very happy marriage. I'm not about to get divorced or have 10 minutes about that. Everyone that I'm really close to who could die has died. So there's no, which is very thoughtful of them. <laughs> They've not left me any. I've not got a great, um, oh, my relative's dead show up the road, you know, so it's weird. So in terms of where it could go next for you, in terms of what you want from your career, are you, are you professionally happy? Are yeah. you satisfied? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I am. It's, and it's it really, you know, I mean, what, what has changed it is the kids are getting to that age where you need to be around for homework and, you know, so I, I'm, I won't do a tour like this again. Physically and in terms of family responsibility, I just can't do it. Um, I won't be away for that many dates, so I don't know exactly what sort of show I'll do next time. Um, I'm, you know, I remember Lee Mack saying one of the reasons he liked he, he, he liked doing the sitcom was he didn't have to tour, you know, and because he had had a family. So if there was some way of striking a balance between doing sorts of when I first pitched Comedy Vehicle to BBC Two. I said I wanted to do it like Dave Allen, where you do something every two or three years. Dave Allen, when I was a kid, he didn't seem to have to go on chat shows. I think you were sort of dimly aware of him. And every two or three years, he'd do another show. And everyone would go, oh, great. And it might even have just been an hour-long special. But it's d- difficult for TV to think like that now. They want to com- keep the stuff rolling along. If there was some way of having a relationship with a broadcaster who'd let me do, you know, an hour-long special every two years off the back of having done less touring, which I'd use to work that material out, that would be great. But on the flip side of that, um, with the kids being teenagers, when the kids start to be teenagers, I would like to be forgotten to the point where I can still play to audiences, but I'm not talked to by people. It's awkward for them, you know, and sometimes they get treated differently because there's a sort of perception that their parents are comedians or something, and I'd sort of like that to go away, and I'd like to be... They didn't really know that we were until kids at school started telling them, you know. Um, 
which is confusing for them because my son cannot understand how I can possibly be a comedian. <laughs> he, he thinks it's gen- genuinely. He saw a bit of me once and just couldn't understand why anyone would. I've got some friends who are hippies who said to me recently that their 12-year-old has just realised they're poor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like a... a I, yeah, well, I know. It's, I mean, I've seen, I remember that happening. I remember a, friend of a, a kid of a friend of mine realising that and them having to explain... Yeah, it's weird when kids realise that things. You know, you, and uh, the, I mean, obviously, realising you're poor is much worse than realising that your parents are comedians. <laughs> well, is it? But there could be some... Because <laughs> often the two go hand in hand as well. It's even worse, you know. But, yeah. you, you, you mentioned regrets earlier on. And yeah. uh, you just mentioned more recently the idea of being not exactly ostracised, but kind of excluded by design from yeah, the community. Yeah, yeah. And obviously that must have, you must have noticed that start to happen. Yeah. And you must, I would assume, have decided to pursue the principle rather well, than there wind are, it back in. Okay, there are times when it's been useful and I re- regret the collateral damage, which was, for example, after the um, second series of Comedy Vehicle, it might have been the first one, the head of, BBC, the head of comedy said that at the moment they weren't going to commission another series, but it might help if I were to become more of a BBC Two personality and could I appear on things as myself, sort of hosting things. And I said, well, I absolutely don't want to do that because I, because I don't have time to do that. It's not interesting to me. And that becoming known as a personality will undermine the character. To be honest, I would have thought anyone could see that. It's not. And he said, well, perhaps you could host something on the culture show. And he was pushing this idea that I'd host a culture show. So what I did was I wrote really horrible ten minutes about the culture show, saying it was a, um, like a children's program from a collapsed Soviet state, and really snagging off all the presenters individually and saying how insulting it was that they'd thought that I would appear on the culture show and I, I was culture. Yeah. Yeah. And I did that bit partly because I thought it was funny, but also partly to absolutely eliminate the possibility that I would be asked to do that, right? And I heard, and um, for an early part of the routine, I, and I like the culture show, right? And I think they did a, it was a good effort to try and, you know, do some culture on telly, but the, and for about three to- early versions of the routine, I did it about why I didn't want to be like Lauren Laverne or something. Then I realised it was much funnier to say Andrew Graham Dixon, because there's, it didn't work with Lauren Laverne. It wasn't sort of the power balance wasn't right, you know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I heard she found out about it, and she said somewhere that I was a horrible bully doing material, picking on people. And I do like her actually. I think she's really talented and clever. But I, but I, I felt like I had to do it. I had to burn my bridges with this thing so that they weren't going to ask me to do it again. And a lot of it is like, and also with the panel shows and things. When I was sort of really trying to get going again in 2005, there seemed to be this sort of assumption that if you were any good, you'd be on a panel show. Now, I don't really like panel shows, and I'm not any good on them. But also, it was sort of helpful to absolutely sort of scorched earth it. I mm. never wanted to be asked, right, to, to remove even the possibility of doing it so that mm. it, wasn't, it wasn't a distraction in the forward motion of what you're trying to do. If, you, if I wasn't thinking, well, maybe I should be on a panel show, if I just make it impossible to even think about it, I'd have to just concentrate on the work rather than mm. some sort of shortcut via that. I don't really, I don't have remotely as strongly opinions about them as I pretend to on stage. But sure. it's, but it would just to sort of, 
make these things you just can't ever do them because and the, the, the culture shows are one I regret a friend of mine had a sort of date with someone that worked on it who was incredibly upset that I'd been so rude about it. So I'm the sort of act that people on the culture show like, which is probably why the head of BBC Two Comedy thought it would be good if I did it, but I absolutely didn't want... It was uh, with me, I, I wanted to go, well, I either want to be making the programme I want to make, or nothing, because I'll just go back and do And how does that factor into your desire to not need to tour as your children become teenagers? I mean, like Adam oh. Bloom on this show years ago yeah. said that he, he felt really satisfied and happy to be backstage at Just for Laughs in Montreal and have someone go this is your chance if you don't do this you're just going to be playing colleges yeah. and he went but I want to play colleges no. and it took the wind out of the guy's sails well, I, well, I th- and, and then he said now I've got two kids I'd happily go yeah. skipping with three cocks in my mouth if I could get <laughs> do you but, know what I mean? but I do really like touring and, I, and that's the problem is I, I will have to do it less I don't, I don't like being away from the kids but I loved coming over Salisbury Plain in a white panel van yesterday and going past Stonehenge on the way to Yeovil. I've, I, get, I love going around Britain and I find, it really, I find it really interesting the last 15 years when I've really started doing a lot of it, seeing how the country's changed and is changing and the dynamics of places. And I, I love about this time of year, soon, we'll head over to Cairngorms, Dundee, Perth. I don't think we're doing that this year, but normally, I like the the, the rituals of the places mm-hmm. you go to. I like going back to the same pubs and shops. I like seeing the same people in the theatres, and I really like the two and a half hours that I'm on stage. I really like it because weirdly, it's like time to yourself. Yeah, right. When I, I've got a one year old, and I yeah. totally relate to that. I, mean, I really get that in London, where I get up at half six. I get, you know, a bridge might be away on tour. I get them up. I get them to school. I write all day. Then I get the kids at like half three. Then I get home. Then I do their homework and their tea. And if I'm, if it's one on Leicester Square, it's about five months, four, three to six months of the year, I'll do Leicester Square. Um, they, I have to get out to be on stage at seven. So I hand over to the babysitter at six. So it's nonstop. Then actually the moment I step on stage, rather than it being, oh no, panic, it's like, Oh, great. I can just mess around. <laughs> and I sort of know what's going to happen within certain parameters. And I'll probably have a glass of wine at half time or at the end. So it kind of feels like it's kind of night out. Fun, fun thing to do. And like, what's sad about that though is I went down to Brighton recently and my old school friend is now 48 and in what he calls a dad punk band. And they rehearse twice a week and do gigs. And other people's fun thing is their hobby. Whereas mm. with us, it's all mixed up with work. Mm. And so you, the thing you sort of love doing also becomes a thing you have to think about in a quite a different way. And I've managed to ruin a number of areas of my life like that. Like I really like, I like lots of music. One of the areas of music I like is um, sort of Im- improvised music, sort of free jazz. And I've been going to see it for 20 years before any of them noticed that I was also that comedian. But then when it was noticed that I was that comedian, I was asked to write more about it or present things about it which has been great. And it's been really interesting watching those people's processes and hugely inspirational and influential. But it's also sad because I can't just go to the Vortex now on a Tuesday night in anonymity and enjoy watching. There's always some sort of negotiation with people, and it's really nice. And I've I've met people I'm on speaking terms with that are sort of my heroes, really, and it's, it's weird. But also... It's like you're sort of in it now, and it was nice to um, it's nice to have things that 
you know. I, I went to Rome with the kids, and one of the things that I've always wanted to look at was the Temple of Saturn, which is where we get the uh, the ruins of the Temple of Saturn, where we get the idea of the Saturnalia from, which was another comedy thing, you know, the the Roman week where the peasants could dress as senators and and all all norms were reversed. So I'm quite interested in things like that. So obviously it's a ruin now, and I was just sort of... The kids were waiting at the bottom of the hill, which was nice of them, because I wanted to have a little moment with the Temple of Saturn. <laughs> and I was sort of looking at it on my own. This bloke sort of stood in front of me, sort of looking at me, and he went, are you Stuart Lee? I thought, you know what, I'm going to say no. I said, no, I'm not. I thought, maybe you'll just leave me alone, just, just so I can look at this. But you accidentally said it using the voice of comedian yeah, Stuart Lee. I said, no. And then, then, then I looked, and they were like down the hill, like hiding, taking photos of me. And I went, oh, don't do that, you prick, you know. But I said, as I said that, I thought, that's also funny, because they've got a much better anecdote now than they would have had. <laughs> I give them a really good anecdote. Yeah, in, in that particular place. I know, yeah. yeah. But, and I am, I am aware that is a funny thing you can do, is you can give people not what they wanted, but something else that's sort of better, which is that you were horrible to them. Although now, actually, when I get stopped, I try... Suddenly, this last few weeks, I've tried to be really patient to everyone that interrupts you, because I feel like the world's getting so nasty that it's all, it almost feels subversive just to be polite to someone. It feels... Uh, I saw this guy about... Uh, there's a charity shop in um, Camden that I walk past every day. And for years I've been looking at the bloke behind the counter thinking, I know who that guy is. I couldn't place him. He's about 60-odd. And then one day I, was with my, I got out of the car there with my little girl and he came out of the shop with a dog on a lead and my little girl started talking to the dog and he started talking to her because she was being nice to the mm. dog. And then I went, I know who you are. You're Nick Knox from the Vibrators, the 70s punk band. He goes, yeah. <laughs> and I, and I, went, I went, my rubbish band supported you in 1989. And he went, well, look at you. You've got a car and I've got nothing. And then he walked off. And I, I thought... <laughs> Oh, he's given me like a punk rock anecdote. It's given me a really good... I've told it to you now. Yeah, yeah. It's much better than him going, oh, hello, how are you? Yeah. Gave me like a little punk story of like being insulted by the bloke from the from the vibrators because I'd got a car. It's not a great car, right? It's a Volkswagen Passat. It's not like I was in a Rolls Royce or something. <laughs> a couple of things quickly. In And I, don't, I appreciate you don't necessarily want to reveal content yeah, of, yeah. of the content provider show. yeah. yeah. Is the, the bit that you kind of obliquely referred to as the bit where you do impressions of lots of people saying a yeah, thing, yeah. is that kind of, does? That, I mean, which I laughed at so much, right. I, that, that clowning that you do, I yeah. think you're able to, you're one of the only people I can think of who can do cerebral clowning. Oh, thank you and very I, much indeed. I, I really, right. I've, I've, I've right. tried clowning as a younger yeah, man yeah. and was fucking terrible at it. Well, I could like, never, I could never have like the, you know, you need to own the emotion. You need to yeah. stand there and take it. And I yeah. could never do that in the way that I <laughs> only now realize yeah. that was what I was failing to do. Yeah. Um, but I wondered if that section was in some way a coded, I won't call it an apology to Russell Howard, um, but your, the, the area in which you're talking well, about... I felt, well, there's a bit that, that I did a bit about him about 10 years ago. It was about, it was about um, the, I got the idea from a charity. There was a press release from that went out. Yes. And one side of it was about how he was doing this massive thing for charity. But because it was an Avalon press release, it was a standard thing, whereas the other side of it was all about the massive turnover of his tours and DVD mm -hmm. sales, because what they do, 
yeah. is they they never miss an opportunity for marketing. Of course. And, w- and one of the ways they market their acts is to talk about how much they earn, right? Because then that... that um, it carries a mistake or it raises a mistake. It makes them look important. Yeah. And, there's, and also yeah. at the same time, there was a news story about how much he earned a year, which at some point must have been signed off by that company. Mm-hmm. Or they would either not have denied it when mm-hmm. asked about it because the perception that he earned that much was useful to them. And I thought it was funny that there were these two stories in opposition, one about the altruism of the, of the product and then also about its massive earning potential, which seemed to work... And I'm sure any most people watching that understood it. Also, at the point where it was written, the status of me, at the point where that was written, I was not, you know, I was not pulling these kinds of crowds. So it's, a, sure. so it, but it, then it hangs around and it's, it seems to, a lot of people seem to talk about it without having seen it, I think. But actually, what, what that bit is actually, that, that voice is, um, it's all like young the people bit of the new going, mate, 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 mate. What, what it is, is it was about some neighbours I had that just kept having parties all the time, really loud parties who were like the sort of people that are 20-something comedians in London because they have to have some family money, basically, to be able to, you know, they've got, you know, the sort of trust, of what we used to call trust of friends, but there was a real old lady that lived underneath them who was really nice. And, like, she wasn't very well and, you know, they they just put a note through the door saying... We're having a party, you know, um, come round if you want. And like most of the people in the street were pensioners who'd lived there since the war, you know, it was really bizarre. It was these sort of people that are like cultural tourists through a depressed part of London. Obviously, it isn't now, Hackney, but... and Do you mean and, comedians? No, they weren't they, comedians. They, no, they were just, just young people, young, you know. Young, then, rich Yeah, kids. and there was like yeah. four in the morning, and there was five in the morning, they were still banging on. And I went out, and there was... A guy, I could see a guy through the window DJing in a motorcycle crash helmet, which really <laughs> annoyed me in a Nathan Barley kind of way. Then there was a guy outside shouting for them to let him in. And I went up to him and went, I went, what are you doing? He went, I'm shouting to get in, mate. And I went, how old are you? Because I sort of felt I couldn't understand that he could be so unself-aware as to have no sense that there'd be families asleep. And he went, I'm 26, mate. I went, how old are you? 26, mate. He kept going like that. And I, I was just standing in the street, and I was just so angry, not about what, he, what he's saying, but also just about him saying, calling me mate. And then I went back in, and my wife pointed out that I was wearing pants, <laughs> a dressing gown, and a pair of walking boots. And I was really like, it must have been like, but that was just that guy annoyed me so much. But then that was weird, right? Because two weeks later at kids' football, Saturday morning, one of the dads who's a lecturer in something somewhere went, do you live on so-and-so road? And I went, yeah. And he went, you told one of my students to fuck off or something at four o'clock in the morning. And I went, oh, God, you know, there's You've no, like... the rock and roll anyway. Yeah, yeah, there's no anonymity. To, but anyway, that was sort of from that kind of um, interaction with people. But, it, but it's not really... It's not really an apology. In a, in a way, because I'm aware it sort of rumbles on, this thing. I sort of thought, well, I'll just do it again. That's the, It's kind of do it again in a different way because it's sort of more annoying to sort of do it again. But... Um, yeah, I, I, th- I think it's the bit, that bit makes it more explicit, though. That in, I mean, it is also true that my my stepbrother, you know, eighteen months ago, my my stepbrother, who who he's, he's got every right to do so, but he just thinks like, my act's awful. He can't really. It's not his sort of thing. It's not a lot of people's thing, you know. You see people on the internet who go, 
who is this cunt? He's so unfunny. My stepbrother's like that. He just... It's just beyond him. Why would anyone like it? So, again, when you say, do you appreciate your respected, lots of people in my immediate family are embarrassed or baffled by... Because they're not... You know, I'm... I've sort of swapped sides in life, if you know what I mean, through... But, but anyway, they... So, he, so how, how do you mean? You well, swap sides sort of, from sort of what like, Well, you get... You get if, when my mum, when I got into college, my mum thought, great. You'll be able to get a good job yeah, and not I, have to I struggle like me. Yeah. But your problem is you have a liberal education, so you end up becoming a liberal. Yeah. You know, not a, not someone who wants to vote Tory and work in an office. You know, so sometimes there is a sort of problem with, you know, and so he just hates it. And but about eighteen months ago, we were out with the kids in London. And he went, oh, um, we've just bought tickets to go and see. Uh, Russell Howard at the uh, at the Royal Albert Hall in eighteen months, and I went oh, and I, I sort of probably looked a bit crestfallen because he would never come to see me, and if he does ever talk about me, it's that he just finds it. It's just I can't really even believe anyone would go, you know. And um, I said oh, and he, I went, I said you know, I can't remember what I said, something. But anyway, he goes, yes, as opposed to you, because you're the most critically acclaimed comedian in Britain, aren't you? And he said that in a sarcastic way, <laughs> and, which I thought was funny, because some, I sort of am sometimes, yeah. right? But he, would, but he said it sarcastically, because wouldn't, it wouldn't even occur to him that I could possibly be, because he thinks it's so bad. So that's why I've been saying that on stage. It's sort of, it's sort of funny, because it, it locates that joke. In the reality that it's all very well for that audience to think that I'm great, who've come to see me. But for most people, for most people outside this little world, including members of my own family, I'm not a proper comedian. I'm someone that can't do it, that isn't on the things that they watch. And, and is, doesn't, is, it's, they, they, my, my, my mum, I think, went to her grave thinking that I was, I'd failed, which is really sad because I was doing reasonably well at the time, but she sort of thought, she, she kept clippings and things, but she, I, she would still be saying to me, when are you going to do cruises? You know, and, and she was trying to be helpful because it's not, it's not from their world, you know, so uh, it's weird. My mum has never seen me do stand-up. Yeah. I've been going 12 years. Yeah. My sister only saw me do stand-up for the first time a couple of months ago. Yeah, yeah. My dad's a bit more into it. He'll come and see me at Edinburgh yeah, yeah, if he's yeah. there. Um, I, is it not the responsibility of the artist to go? It doesn't matter. Like to no. assert, I, to isolate yeah. yourself from that. It and is. Go, Actually, I'm doing it for me. Yeah, I, am, I can't hold on to that. But it was funny. Of, but it was funny. It to was make funny. Out. It's funny to make out that you're. Uh, funnily enough, my stepfather. In the last few years, he came up to Edinburgh, came to see me. He really likes Bridget stuff a lot, which is hilarious. And then he's then one year. He, now he started, he started going to see all sorts of things, you know, <laughs> off his own back with his new... And he'd be going, yeah, I went to see, you know, so-and-so. It was interesting because it was sort of like a club set, but there was a... Oh, who that is? <laughs> it's like 82. And he's suddenly the Steve Bennett of pensioners. Like with his, you know, because they go and see a few things. If they go and see a few things, they realise there's all different ways of doing it. Yeah. Don't they, your family? But if they've only seen... Yeah. Um, Michael McIntyre on telly and you of course they think you're terrible because they think well why aren't you in a, st a football stadium 
like running around fast. Why are you in this small room standing still? It just seems wrong to them, you know, in every way. They go, oh, you know, it must be, you know, people must be very proud, but actually sort of embarrassment a lot of the time, especially because, you know, you've got to think, there's been two or three things where the only time my mum's friends would hear about me is if the sorts of papers they read were conducting essentially a campaign to have my work banned, you know, so... Yeah. Is is bad. there, do you think, in the fact that you've got, a, you know, a 40,000 page, a 40,000 word document of uh, the bio yeah, of yeah, it's yeah. all about your line. I've heard you talk about that before. I've stopped I, doing it I'm, now. Yeah. Have you stopped cl- adding to it, do you mean? Yeah, I've stopped doing it. Do you I, still Google yourself? Do you still search well, you sometimes your own name see stuff Twitter after, stuff like I, that? I, I, if there's a new show out, I'll look if what people are saying about it or whatever, okay. yeah. But not so, as systematic as I do. I mean, I mean, I... Because also there's just so much now, it's unmanageable. You can't really, you know. I can't imagine that had a positive effect on your mental health. Um, well, it may not have had a positive effect on my mental health, but it had a positive effect on the act, which is that I decided to become more like the thing they appeared to hate. Um, and to sort of, so if they go, this is politically correct bullshit, I go, right, I'm going to say, I'm going to write, I think that's a good thing. And if they say you're a middle class snob, then I thought, well, sort of go with that you know because um or if they're just really really racist the people that hate you then just try to not be try more to not be racist you know so it was sort of it, in a way the the character for the second series was sharpened by looking at what people hated about the first series and then making it more like what they hated and um uh so it, it kind of it, it was sort of a collaborative process. And the, and the most obvious place with that, actually, is um, the newspaper columns that I do for The Observer. I do them when David Mitchell's ill, which is a lot. Uh, and the, uh, <laughs> and um, the below-the-line comments for those are fascinating because what we're now starting to realise um, is that a lot of traffic on the web of discussions about UKIP, Trump, mm. Brexit is engineered by is engineered by bots or by um, people that are in the pay of Putin or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this isn't paranoid conspiracy mm-hmm. theory. Mm-hmm. We, we now know that 25% of posts on the internet that were pro-leave um, were before the referendum were orchestrated by a right-wing think tank. Right? It's not, I don't know why this isn't a bigger story. It was yeah, a yeah, four-page in The Observer last week. So when I write those articles, you realise you're sort of in combat with um, not in combat, but your the the response to the article below the line is being shaped often by quite systematic forces. Well, I wrote a thing about the Chinese government and the <laughs> inability of the of the people writing on behalf of the Chinese government to disguise themselves as normal posters was. They, they kind of go. It has just occurred to me that the Chinese post-war economy has actually been a model example. Of <laughs> I really like just something yeah. no one say. The other thing, of course, is you have people that really hate you that often operate under a variety of identities simultaneously that mm. appear to have dialogues with mm. each other, all of which are fabricated. So you kind of, you sort of see this thing. And then the, the newspaper columns, sometimes I write things in them. I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. You can leave this in. I mean, I write things in them precisely because it will amuse me what will happen below the line, mm. right? Like last week, I wrote that... Um, uh, we were going to deport loads of attractive young Polish women and invite back to Britain loads of leather-skinned racists currently living in Spain. And I knew 
that they would then go, he calls himself a liberal, but in fact, this is virtue signaling of the, yeah. you know, he has demonized the working class. And I just thought, yeah, I'll just do that and see. And then, then some other people will all argue with him and it'd be really funny. Right? So I sort of create, <laughs> I partly like to create, it's partly those are about what will be funny that will then happen, you know, um, or to put something in one week to generate content that you can then write about next week. It's really funny. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Are you happy? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I would be, I would be, uh, I mean, certainly I never imagined I'd have this life. And, uh, and I, I, um, I, 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 what, I, what we can't seem to do, it's difficult to make the nuts and bolts of life work in terms of being around with the kids and each other and whatever, because we've, both got this mentality where we didn't come from much and um, think we should work a lot while the opportunities are there because it might go and we don't have you know pension plans or whatever so I'm sure anyone would be in, have the same mindset but I'm aware that the, the life part of life is sort of passing us by uh, because we're doing we're working nights all the time and uh, we have to be really careful to block out spaces to do kids holidays or things at weekends otherwise it sort of disappears but they're they're robust little kids and I think partly they are because they've spent every summer in Edinburgh and they they're, they're exposed to all kinds of different funny people they're not very non-judgmental precisely because of our lives you know I mean my I sometimes say to Luke I can't believe some of the people you've met. You've met like major cultural figures of the 20th century. In fact, one of them has given you a bear. You know? <laughs> it's, sort of, um, uh, it's funny, uh, but yeah, we need to we need to make life work more. And to make life work more will probably mean putting the comedy a bit on the that downscaling it a bit. And I hope that I mean, when people say the shows are good. One one of one of the stars of the four stars is simply that I did it for months, you know, and I, I just it was just my mum used to call me a plodder. She said you're not innately clever, but you sort of really plod away at things, and I sort of have done that with a show. I mean, I do them a hundred times now before I think they're ready, you know. Um, so whether I'll have time to carry on doing that, I don't know. Um, very last thing, I want you to be able to, I personally, as a fan of yours, want you to be able to walk into dressing rooms without things being awkward. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, but it's also just about... And, and, and also, I just the thing is, I, I've, I've read, having, having been looking through your work, I started saying this earlier and we got distracted, I, can, I feel like I can see more now, having seen the overview of so much, nearly all of your work, um, I feel like I, I have got a, a, a much more positive attitude towards the moments when you are on stage, in inverted commas, slagging off another comedian, for yeah. want of a better phrase of doing it. And I feel like, oh, I kind of get it a bit more now because I can see, sometimes it's harder to see the context when you, when you see a routine on its own or when you get told about it in a club and have you seen what Stuart Lee said yeah, next? Yeah. I think I've said to someone on the show before, do you feel like Stuart Lee is becoming the comedy police? And it feels like there is that attitude amongst newer acts that it's almost like 
you become an arbiter yeah yeah because, no, no. because if you if you say something yeah. it, no matter how how metatextual it is for you yeah. if we hear that you've said something about act x yeah, then know, we kind they, of go oh Stu's done yeah, that but all those things tend to be part of larger discussions you know so it's just partly why well they uh, do yeah. but i, I part yeah. of the, one of the hopes yeah. i had for this interview which we must now finish but one of the hopes i had would be that in some way you could go Oh, I didn't mean that. And if anyone upset by it, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm not going to say that. No, 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 that's it. I'm not asking you to, but I sort of had hoped in some way as a fan of yours yeah. that, that there could be some sort of... Yeah, well, well I, I don't really... I mean, I sort of stand by everything in its context. You know, but that's the thing. Things get... Things get... I mean, you know, Twitter's not a great medium for nuance, is it? You know, if people are discussing what you've done in 140 characters. And also things from three years ago hang around as if they're now. And they may have been true statistically, you know, economically, factually at that point. But then they hang around now. And, like, things are changing so fast. I mean, there are things you wouldn't say now that you could have said three years ago that have just changed. Because everything's changed. So it's sort of, um, yeah, it's... uh, it's difficult. The, the, the thing is, what do you do? Do you not talk about anything because of the risk of it getting chopped up and changed? It does feel like we're getting to that. I've got to go. I've really, I've got to go to pool now. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Stuart. There's no postamble today. I've simply got, well, <laughs> there's rather than an official postamble. Um, this is just a little thank you. I just want to say thank you, not just to uh, Matt Hoss and uh, Emily Crosby and, of course, Daryl Smith. Hashtag thanks, Daryl. Um, but also to everyone that's worked on the show since we started 200, 200 episodes ago. I feel like the bit in um, uh, in Gross Point Blank where John Cusack meets up with his mate who's beeping the horn and going, 10 years or 20 years or whatever it is. 200 episodes over five years. I would really like to thank Nathan Wood, uh, Dan Melrose for the music, Johnny Mouncer, who briefly stepped in as a a kind of relief uh, editor for a little while Uh, I would like to thank Asher Trelevin for his suggestion of the title of this show thanks man and uh, I'd like to thank everybody that has listened to it Livy Phipps is another frequent logger Polly Becker who's my official artist Uh, Hai Min Lee who is helping me with uh, some design things at the moment Um, and everyone that is Andre Pattenden Andre oh my god my brother Um, he's been doing uh, uh, he's done so much design work for me over the years and helped me promote the show and stuff uh, all gratis because he's such a legend um, and uh, and all of those people who have contributed to the show by appearing I mean this sounds like I'm going to stop doing it I'm not <laughs> I sometimes wish I could because I'm exhausted but um Everyone that's been on the show or written into the show or donated to the show uh, or shared the show with a friend pressed some cash into my hand, which now, thanks to brilliant comedian Dan Evans, who you'll remember from episode two way back then, uh, the act of doing the secret thing where you put money in my hand and say something cool, that is now called virtual merch or virch. So uh, if you see me uh, in Melbourne or McHuncliffe or any of these exciting places, then uh, you can uh, you can do the virch thing if you like. Um 
I just want to say thank you to you for listening. Thanks for coming to see my own shows. Thanks for coming to see the stand-up. Thanks for coming up and uh, saying expressive, manic things to me about how much you like it. And thanks for sidling up to me and muttering something about having planned what to say and then forgotten. I'm not referring to a specific individual. That happens quite a lot. Um, thank you for sharing your thoughts with me online. Thanks for tweeting at me. Uh, thanks for just making this into the thing that it is. Because all I do is talk to people and then upload it. Um, but I mean, I remember watching it tick round to a thousand. I mean, it's fairly quickly after the start of the show, maybe the first couple of months, I remembered seeing the feed count, you know, the subscriber count tick round to a thousand. And I remember how exciting that was. And now we're at many, many more times that. And, uh, <sighs> I've not really, you know, I thought I'll just, I'll just spiel this. There've been a few recently, haven't there, where I've become quite emotional. It's not going to be one of them. 200 episodes though, eh? 200 episodes. Oh my goodness me. Thanks everybody. Join the Facebook group if you want to uh, communicate uh, in, individually. Sorry I didn't get, I should say, sorry I didn't get to, to ask any listener questions uh, to Stuart. They did, they were really helpful to read because it lets me know what's on your mind and it helps me inform, it helps inform me as to the sorts of things you want to find out about and the sorts of, um, the sorts of jokes about other podcasts that you like to repeatedly do on every thread over and over again. But even that, I don't mind it. I don't mind it at all. Um, thank you, everybody. What a, what a lovely thing. Next week's show is going to blow your socks off. Speak to you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.